Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn led to the renaming of periods into ages. You personally have just experienced the information age and what a ride it's been. Now consider that you may right now be living through a transition to a new age, the age of infinite. An age is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and resources, which have been made possible through a new construct where the moon and earth, as we call it mirth, will create a new ecosystem and economic system to take us into the infinite future. The ingredients for amazing sci-fi story that will come to life in your lifetime. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon. NASA named us Project Moon Hut. Through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use the endeavors, the paradigm-shifting thinking, and the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we are going to be exploring an amazing topic. It is right now we are living a model for a future of thriving on Earth. And we have with us Nicole Stott. Hi, Nicole. Hi, nice to be here. Great to have you on. As always, we do a very brief introduction. So here's Nicole's. Nicole is a NASA astronaut with two space flights and 104 days living and working in space as a crew member on both the International Space Station and the Space Shuttle. She's also the founder of the <coughs> Space for Art Foundation, uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art. Now, before we get started, we normally go directly into the program. I've had this month at least three people ask me questions about the podcast. So let me explain to everybody who is listening this. We, I select a guest. Uh, we've turned down over 300 people who have asked in the process or we've talked to. Then the guest gets to know who we are through videos that we have in content. Then we make a call where, for example, Nicole and I spend the time to figure out who we are as people and to find a title. I looked it up. Nicole and I spoke for one hour and 51 minutes to create our title. <laughs> yep, it was one hour and 51. There were a few seconds I didn't add that. And then the guest is on their own to create the program. I don't do any research. I don't look up any information. I do not have the outline in advance, as a matter of fact, in front of me. I have 12 pieces of paper, and on the top it says the title and the date and Nicole's name. That's it. And from here, this is where we both learn together, or we all learn together, what Nicole is sharing. So let's get started. Nicole, do you have an outline for us today? I do have an outline for you. And, you know, I love the title. Just want to start out by saying that right now we are living a model for a future of thriving on Earth because I would argue for pretty much um, that this applies for pretty much anywhere else we decide to settle as well. But my outline for you number one, most of the time, the simple things are the most powerful. Are the most powerful. Number two, Everything is local. Number three. Mechanical life support system. Number four. Crewmates, not passengers. Number five. Off the earth for the earth. 
Number six. Okay, a six and the final one is open your heart and mind to Earthrise moments. And mind to earth rise moments. Okay, I'm excited. Let's start with number one. Most of the time, the simple things are the most powerful. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff, I think, in the end, for you might be obvious. Well, the, uh, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> let's just start off with, yeah, yeah I don't, just say, the, you know, and I, I mean it because, and, but sometimes it requires us just to remind ourselves of these things that we probably learned when we were in kindergarten, right? And that somehow they like push their way to the back of our brains and we don't consider them so much, right? And um, I think, you know, just based on the, the title, this model, I just want to say right up front that the model I'm referring to mm -hmm. and that we discussed is the International Space Station program, just yep. to get that out there so people, you know, well, well I, oh, so, oh, dang it, sorry. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, so we're talking about the International Space Station and you're going to focus on, on that. Uh, this comment that you've just made are the most obvious. I, I actually had this conversation with my wife this morning. I had said to her, is amazing, the, when the student is ready, the information will appear. We've made tr very huge transitional changes in Project Moon Hut. And a document I've had on my desktop for probably 4 billion years, <laughs> I opened up last night and it was what I needed last night. Yeah. So you are what I need today. <laughs> Well, so, so that I'm ready for the obvious. <laughs> okay, and and I will continue here because I think that uh, you know when we talk about things like the International Space Station, there tends to be this focus on the technical, right? You know, and I think in the end, and and I would argue that historically, I think people will look back and not really think about it so much from the technology, but really how it's come down to the people, the decisions made, the way they've come together, right? Okay. And, you know, with this, this group of people, um, you know, the six or seven that are on the space station at any given time, but perhaps even more importantly, the tens of thousands down here on earth that are facilitating this this program that are coming together in a way to um, overcome really all the complexity that's required to do something like get to live and work on come home safely from an international space station is this underlying belief in an approach of here's how we can not why we can't and Within that, I think at the core is really just believing, you know, there is this belief, you know, this power of belief, believing that there are solutions to the most challenging problems and taking action to realize those. And so finally, getting to what, you know, the simplicity in this is, is that it really is a complex thing right, to get out of this gravity well on our planet, um, to get to even a place orbiting Earth, like the International Space Station, to live and work there for even a short period of time, and to come home safely. Mm -hmm. But in that, I mean, honestly, through all of that experience that I had, 
I came home with three simple, very simple, very simple lessons. And they are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and you will, you will know them. I'm, I'm going to know them now. <laughs> you will know them now. Um, and you've known them. Um, we live on a planet. We are all earthlings. And the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere that blankets and protects us all. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I get goosebumps every time I say those words to somebody, because first of all, you know, I don't know what you're looking like right now. You know, guys probably got this, <laughs> the look not, I get a lot of times from people. Oh yeah. We don't, we don't have face. a video on. So, know, yes, there's right. no video, so there's you know, no video. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually just, so you, you did say something. So I'll tell you what I'm, the first one we live on a planet project moon hut really talks about the fact that we are. And I, I shared with you that I'm not a space person. I don't look yep. to the stars. I don't wake up every morning and say, oh my God, there's going to be a, I'm going to sit for the next five hours and watch a launch. Uh, I tell people, give me like, give me the time. If it's a two 30 launch and I need to watch <laughs> it, I'll be there at two 24 mm -hmm. and at two 27 or nine, whenever I'm gone. Uh, so we live on a planet. We're all earthlings. My mind went, well, we're earthlings plus a lot more. Yeah. And we go to the 50 million species because mm -hmm. without them. I include them. Okay. Uh, so good. So we're earthlings <laughs> plus more. I'm writing plus more. Okay. And then the other one is the only border that matters. And when you said that, I said, it's the only border that truly matters, yet mm -hmm. humans don't see it. Yep. Does that make sense? That, that, that's what came it to does. my mind. Where it they just. Does. The border is more important between Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan or between China and and Afghanistan is more important than the fact that that one line up there, if it's gone, we're gone. Yeah, I guess there's a I guess there's a. You know, what, what's the meaning of important, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I suppose that is relative to any given circumstance. We could talk about a lot of them, I think, you know, that, that these constructs that we've put in place, perhaps. Um, the one thing we didn't put in place, <laughs> which is that thin blue line, right, is ultimately what, um, what we all share in common with respect to our survival. And, and, you know, in our title, we talked about thriving, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, survival is one thing. Thriving is another thing. And so, um, and you mentioned, I think it's really a key point is, you know, something we don't think about, something we don't pay attention to, that thin blue line, right? We go outside and I'm, I'm looking out my window right now and even I can, I have to kind of step back and say, okay, think about that, you know, that blue sky that I'm looking at above me, that really and truly looks like it goes on forever or at least it's it's going on far enough you know in my life that it's doing what it needs to for me why do i need to worry about it and at the same time <clears throat> tell me if i'm wrong i'm at my desk so my i saw many lines when you said that i saw the line of my desk is where i work mm -hmm. i saw the window which was a line to where i live mm -hmm. i could see outside i could see the road so there's a line there then I saw the tree line. Then I saw the cloud line. So I actually saw many lines, as you said it. Mm -hmm. 
and and yeah, that line, that blue one, is so far away that uh, it's a tough one to. It's a tough one. It is. It is. It, and I, I think it's just it's become kind of this given for us, right? And all those lines you described, and you know the borders that we've put between ourselves, um, have become the focus. You know, yes. the focus for us. That's and, and I get it. We're human. We're looking for the immediacy around us, the thing that might hurt us, that is most apparent to us. Um, and, yet, and and yet I would say that the majority of, including myself, even though my background is organic chemistry, science, physics, all that, I don't think I'm asking myself and maybe you can help me understand what is the line like what is it made of what is it how does that line work because i as much as i'd like to say i understand yeah. I, I i right now i have no clue yeah. <laughs> so I, I do do you is this something you studied that line um, to, to some degree, you know, I suppose I have. Um, and, you know, it's what we, I guess, I guess the simplest way to th think of it would be, you know, it's our atmosphere, right? Okay. <laughs> That's the way we learn about it in school is it's our atmosphere. It contains all of the gases, right, that allow us to survive. And if they're in a good condition, um, we can also thrive. Um, that thin blue line, I like to think of it kind of in comparison to the hull of our, our spaceship too, right? You know, when you think about the space station is that it does a really good job. I mean, it's by design meant to hold in all the good stuff so that we can survive. <laughs> and yet it will do a good job holding in all the bad stuff so too. So yet I, 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 my mind actually twists that a little bit because I'm thinking, is there a line or is gravity so strong that it holds the atmospheric elements, if that's the way to say it, atmospheric um, contents close enough to Earth so that there forms a line, yet it's really a line of gravity. You are that correct. Is, I am correct. <laughs> You are correct. So okay. <laughs> that 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 characteristic of our, you know, our planet in space. Um, and I know of your, you know, your concept of mirth, you know, this whole balance between Earth and the moon and its placement in, yeah. in space. You know, gravity is, you know, is probably the key player in all of that, how the moon stays with with us the way it does, how this thin line of atmosphere is um held in place around our planet to you know to allow us to survive yeah it's kind of cool all of these things that that are interacting to to make that possible and that you know part of that survival you know we're we're all revolving around the sun too right that's yes. not so friendly to us in general you know so it's why we wear sunscreen and the greatest you know most most um significant sunscreen we have is that atmosphere as well the way it's kind of this blanket that's um acting like a planetary sunscreen for us yeah um you know in addition you know just to radiation in general and the opportunity for um different kinds of impacts on us um i don't know we i i look at it i'm looking out my window and it just looks there's these white billowy clouds and it just looks like this delicate 
blue, I don't know, um, color even. It's not, I don't even, it doesn't even look to me like a line or a thin. And yet I know, we know it's like what, in the first five to 10 miles of it is where the, the real life sustaining power in that atmosphere is. And I, you know, I always joke, you can drive from Kennedy Space Center here in Florida to Orlando to get to Disney World. And you'll, if you did that same distance driving straight up, you'd be, you'd be out of our atmosphere before you got to the Magic Kingdom. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's super thin. <laughs> it's, it's an, in, uh, I haven't spent the time thinking about it that way, which is kind of getting me to say, I'm saying to myself, why not? what we didn't know about these things hundreds of years ago we didn't know it existed and so now to know that it exists what would what would give it a means of prioritization and I, the reason i say it let me jump back is you use the word radiation and if you're not a space person the space industry, let's call it the space industry, but actually I've been saying this recently, space is not an industry, it's a geography. So it's very simple, it's just a geography, it's not an industry. We don't have an air industry, we don't have a water industry, we don't have a land industry. We really don't have a space industry. We have a satellite industry, we have uh, uh, um, industries that could do weaponry, we have all sorts of things, but it's a diff different question. and. When I'm thinking about how do we, uh, about rate, you brought up radiation and it triggered something in my head is we have radiation all over all the time. It's in molecules, it's, it's, it's exists around us. Mm -hmm. And so in space, and we called it, let's call it space weather, the consistency of space. One of the challenges is an increased radiation, but we on earth don't understand what that means. And how do we make that simple for, for someone like me? How do we make that simple so that we can actually feel like it's that dangerous? Um, well, I, you know, I think in general, people understand that, you know, outside of our atmosphere, you know, there's real, it's, it's deadly. <laughs> but deadly right? doesn't mean anything because have no. you ever seen someone die of radiation in your lifetime? Um, no. I guess. Do we get a sunburn, but we don't say we're being radiated. We got hit by the sun. Yeah, I guess you'd have to go to like, you know, accidental kinds of things with uh, yeah, Chernobyl you know, power plants and stuff like that. Yeah, where that so, becomes a, like a visible thing. And perhaps the answer is, um, you know, to make this a reality for people is um, is a visual kind of a visual context these you know i think nothing does it better than these images that we have from space where you absolutely see the size of the planet and this just thin veil of blue you know surrounding it and you know to get people to contemplate that i think one of the things you said that's interesting to me is um you know this idea of radiation this idea of the atmosphere and what <clears throat> and what it is you know, in school, and I've watched this with, with my son, he just graduated from high school. I've watched this with him through his classes and how they present things and, of course, how they're teaching them to take a test. But that could be a whole other uh, conversation, uh, is that 
there tends, even still, you know, in the science classes, for it to be about the technical, mm -hmm. not for it to be about the relationship that whatever subject you're studying has to do with, with you as a human being, with other life on the planet, with how this whole, you know, planetary ecosystem, closed loop system works. It's always, you know, pointed to a particular topic at a particular time about the science and technology of it versus the, the human relationship. There's a reason, <clears throat> there's a, a reason that's embedded in, I'm going to say the American ecosystem of education as compared to others, because I don't want to speak for another society that might have it differently, is that the, to teach an integrated class that has multiple disciplines. You're going from science, which individuals might think it's the actual technical, to the behavioral side or all the other avenues, human or bio biological. It takes about 30% more for a teacher to teach a class that has integrated information and even more if you have to integrate it with other teachers. And therefore, to do it, most individuals are not willing to do that work. And I'm not picking on teachers, please don't take it that way. But I was at an AACSB, the accreditation for the schools conference. And we, I asked this question, I brought it up and the teacher said, it's 30% more minimum to teach a class that has integrated disciplines in it. And why would a teacher wanna do that if they don't have to? And I, I this was 20 years ago, I was, I was yeah. stunned. <clears throat> Well, and they're not necessarily paid in a way that would... Right. Well, that's my point you know, is there, there's no incentive. Yeah. The, the fact that they said it was 30% more, they didn't reply back. That's a great idea. We should do more of it because it would help the students learn more. It was more about the time that they would have to take to teach the class. Well, and I think, you know, um, what I've seen too is that there's a mandate to the way they teach so that the test can be passed, right? So that your school can get the highest ranking for, you know, passing some standardized test versus mm -hmm. allowing our kids <laughs> to experience what they're learning, to really establish a relationship with it, to use their whole brains, you know, when they're looking at and integrated is the word that comes to mind for me with that is, you know, use their whole brains and their whole talent for um, solving problems, which is, you know, in the end, what are, what are we educating our kids for? You know, we want them to be able to be good problem solvers and use what they know and experience of the world around them in a way that allows them to do that. The, and that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is what is said, yet education is governance. An educational community is designed to keep those in power. And I don't mean that in a negative. It means to keep the government the way it's functioning in the way it would like to function. So Chinese government education is different than Indian government uh, education, which is different than American education, because each one fits the construct of governance. So this belief that education is about problem solving, it should be. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, that's why my husband and I never hesitated <laughs> to take our son as he was growing up 
out of school to go somewhere to experience something to see another part of the planet to meet people that don't live the same way he does and to understand that you know in a lot of ways that's okay and in some ways it's not okay and we need to be prepared to you know stand up and help them you know those those kinds of things to see to see the world and kind of for him to figure out his place in it outside of just that regimented <laughs> Here's the science or the technology of what you're learning versus your relationship to it. We I did similar. We did similar. We would take, if I was going to a print shop, I'd bring yep. them to the print shop and yep. they could see something different than what they would be educationally taught. They're, it's very, very different. Yeah. So, I mean, I know I struggled. I struggled in school with things that I couldn't wrap my brain around with respect to how, how, is this going to fit into my life? How am I going to use this? You know, and um, and then I had teachers that were just so wonderful. At, I mean, they I, I didn't realize it at the time. You know, maybe they were doing what it took to that extra thirty percent, I guess, to bring the subject to life. You know, for me, and I think that's what you know. This idea of the thin blue line, perhaps. You know, we live on a planet Earthlings with all of the creatures we share the planet with, and you know, this, this gravity held in protective layer of us is to figure out ways to establish the relationship with it. And I think this imagery from space, um, you know, uh, just reminding people to consider it. Um, and I think that's part of my job now is the, to speak to as many people and remind me, hey, look up, that does not go on forever. <laughs> this might be useful. This is the one thing that made me think about what you're saying. I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I saw him on a video and he holds, he's sitting at his desk and he grabs a basketball behind him. Mm -hmm. And he says, the International Space Station is one sixteen uh, is one eighth of an inch off the, the basketball. And he puts yeah. his finger approximately one eighth of an inch. So it's less than half a centimeter. He then says, that guy who jumped from space, he didn't jump from space. He was one sixteenth of an inch off mm -hmm. the earth. And he puts his finger, he says to the camera, can you see it? And he says, no, you can't. You're too far away. I was like, okay. I didn't realize <laughs> that's how close the International Space Station was. Yeah. I thought it was further. And then he says, and the, and the moon is, and in that split second, I make my own calculation. And I do this to people all the time. How far away do you think it is? Take a guess, Nicole, how far the average person you think believes if the moon is the size of the earth, is the size of basketball, how far away is planet uh, is the moon? Wow. I don't, I don't know because I know how far away the moon is. Well, you know. know, but if you didn't know, know yeah. the average person puts it between a meter, three feet, uh, two feet, actually, they start, but uh, about a meter to two meters away, six yeah. feet away. And then he says, and I was probably, I don't remember my answer in my head. He says, 30 feet, 10 meters. Like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. That was the moment I said, what am I doing in Project Moon Hut? I think I should get off this ship. And then he says, Mars is a mile away. Yep. And I say to myself, why are we working on Mars? It's so far away. We have this thing right next to us. And even that was, that was a pivotal moment because I called a friend of mine 
and said, what am I doing? And he said, oh, no, David, watch Bill Nye, the science guy. He has this video about how far away the planets are. He's on a bike. Yeah. You've seen it. It's yeah, and it, yeah, there's great like there's great models for that too. You know, this whole thing. Our, our, one of our local cities is doing, um, you know, this scale solar system thing, kind of around the city hall, and it builds out, and it's for people to get, you know, to interact with it and learn more about, I guess, who and where we are together in space. But um, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, but it's not made simple. No. Most of the time, the simple <laughs> things are the most powerful, yeah. and and the industry, I'm going to use the word space, but it's not space. It's not an industry. The people who are involved in this industry make it complicated. Mm-hmm. They don't make it for someone like, again, my background is all sciences, so I could figure it out. But they don't make it so I just say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Well, I think it's getting better. I, I am right on board with you. I agree. You know, having worked, I worked for NASA for 28 years. Um, at the Kennedy Space Center as an engineer, getting space shuttles and space stations ready to fly. And then, you know, later as an astronaut and actually flying, you know, on those spaceships and stuff. And my entire time there, I'm like, why aren't, why aren't we sharing the wonder of this in a way, you know, people, I mean, it didn't matter which school I went to or what audience I was speaking to, people are excited about it, but they don't, they, they haven't really, establish their own relationship with it right and there's so many ways i think for us to do that so, so give me a few How, give, give me give me well, five different ways that we could create a better relationship so that i'm not trying to describe to people things that are highly complex by the way they're all in an acronym that i can't remember all the acronyms <laughs> and even the plan yeah. naming structures are yeah it's an a434965a planet compared to a494623 b planet Oh, I think they did such a great job when they came up with that Goldilocks term, right? The Goldilocks planets you yeah. know, that we're looking, you know, the ones that, that, that might um, support life as we know it. And, and I love that because I think that, you know, when I think about Earth and, um, you know, the only planet in our solar system that will support life as we know it um, and how perfectly placed you know, distance from the sun, right? A little closer, a little further away, not so good for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have having all of what we need, you know, to survive the right, you know, temperature porridge, I guess, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, well whatever supposedly, it <laughs> but it's 1.5 degrees Celsius more than it's supposed to be. At well, this now, you know, now whose fault is that? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> It's mine. It's mine. Yeah. Well, and that's the way I feel. So, you know, I really, there's a burden there, right? You know, is it all my fault? You know, what, what things am I doing to help counter that? Um, But I think, you know, I, I really struggled for a long time with, holy moly, NASA doing, you know, and that's just NASA, not to mention the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency and all of the other international space agencies that are doing, you know, similar things. It's like, Man, they do such a great job communicating with the people that already love NASA. Correct. But they don't yeah, reach they don't reach people like really me. Really bad job reaching everybody else. And one of the one of the one of my very favorite people that I um, was first working for at the Kennedy Space Center, his name is Jay Honeycutt, just a hero of the, the space program. Um, and wonderful friend, mentor, I consider second kind of dad to me. 
Um, he's the one who introduced me to that. Here's how we can, not why we can't. Okay. To things, right? And, um, and he's a person who, when you talk to him about this kind of thing, um, worked, worked the Apollo days, solved problems, was right in there with the Apollo 13 solution to things. And, um, and he, he, in a joking but serious way, he's like, you know, NASA TV, <laughs> NASA TV takes the most exciting things that are happening on and off this planet and turns them into the most boring things. Nobody. I, I actually didn't know there was a NASA TV, so I'm gonna let's start yep. with that one. But they turn, yeah. Uh, they are better. They are. They have gotten it's much because better because I believe there's an inherent struck belief that everybody loves space, and I get that often. Yeah. Don't can't you just don't you just love going outside and just looking up and want and wondering and superficially. They, no, they, no, they, but I, I don't do that all the time. Yeah. And that, well, isn't it amazing? The planets and no, it's not it amazing. Should be, David. No, but that's, a, but, but are you excited? I do my own roofing, carpentry, plumbing, electrical work. I mean, yeah, I love animals. I am excited about that too. We have every individuals have their own excitements and we can't yeah. tell the rest of the world that they have to be excited about this it has to be demonstrated yeah and and i you know it's I, the, that excitement word is an interesting one i think because i think it's more um you know maybe they're not excited about looking up at the stars or uh that that rocket is launching you know tomorrow with people on it going to that international space station that's only you know a finger's distance from the mm -hmm. surface of the earth or whatever but i think there's still i think there still is an imperative for them to be aware you know to have an awareness so, so how uh, how uh, do you that that's the that's the challenge we called it mirth why because a nine-year-old can get it yeah cis lunar lunar all of these other terms make it very challenging moon and earth Mirth, simple. I know in my family, and let's use the, there's four of us. I don't, our family doesn't pay any attention to what I'm working on. And they're not space people. Yeah. So how do we, Project Moonhead is about crossing that divide. So I'm asking you, how do we cross that divide and not talk to the space people only? Yeah, I think, well, you know, I think the schools are a place where, and I'm, I'm watching that become more and more, you know, use the word integrated, integrated into curriculums, the, the idea of, of the fact that we live on a planet that, you know, those three simple lessons of earthling and thin blue line, just becoming a, a tool for, um, for teaching our kids. I think more and more of that because if you can get them while they're young, it just becomes it becomes like part of how they grow up, right? Yeah, <laughs> I agree. And they might consider it, right? Um, so I, I really think that's that's a place uh, of real value um, for it to be happening. I I think like when I think about my um, local area here in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is just across the state from the Kennedy Space Center, and uh, and occasionally I'll see something, uh, you know, usually it's when there's a launch about to happen or, you know, perhaps when something has gone wrong, which is not when you want people really to be, mm -hmm. you know, getting their first introduction to things. But, um, but in my mind, 
in an area where the the space center the um the business of space the the business of space exploration in in benefit to humanity is going on where it's a it's a focus every night there should be something on every local news station so so i'll give you in project moon hut's construct which i think you saw in one of the videos i call it a billion uh, there's a construct called a billion hearts and minds and we would like to see and this is what we are working on as part of what we're building what's called a little bit of space that every class not yeah. stem i hate when it's focused I, just on oh stem gosh, every <laughs> single every, teachers teach in blocks which I, I know you know this they teach their blocks so they could have 50 blocks in a year or 10 blocks that go a few days and i'm i've been asking teachers can you add a little bit of space and that takes it's a it's a pun or not a pun yeah. it's a whatever the word is it's got multiple meanings is could you teach three days in a psychology class about space? And I, what do you mean teach space? I said, could you teach it? You'd never learned anything. I, space is important. It's where we're, there are things going on. What would you teach? Well, living in confined quarters, living away from home, the challenges of getting prepared. And I said, could you do three days of that? How about an art class? And how much art has influenced space art, meaning movies, books, yeah. images have influenced the world. Could you teach a little bit about space there? Could you teach it in, in, uh, in sports? Could you teach? And yeah, I could do that. We make space separate from us and it's not. And that's right. what Mirth is trying to do is to say, no, no, no. Our ecosystem is the moon and earth. We need it to survive. And if we changed our educational system and we changed how we talked about it, we could be more inclusive. Yep. And, and I, I think, <laughs> and, and, the, and the industry itself talks about all the great things that it does. So we have a team member, I won't mention his name, very, very bright, made more money than you can ever imagine, multiple industries. And he said to me the other day, David, you've been talking about all the benefits to earth. Do you have a list? And it, there's all over NASA sites, I think, but we have 170 items right now or 180 items that we've calculated. The sneakers that you wear, the running sneakers, athletic shoes, have space technology in there. The mouse that you have is space technology. This call that we're having on, it's on oh, a Zoom, yeah. is space it? technology. You can't get a package delivered to your home today from any carrier without space involved, the food that you eat. You probably can't drive from point A to point B anymore. Correct. <laughs> well, but all of it, yet what does the space industry discuss? These complex, the International Space Station. Yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't help me understand why. So let's not call it space because it's really what we do every day. We're, our lives are full of it. Uh, uh, how many movies have you gone to that have had space themes in it? How many books have you read that had included space? And we make it complicated. And to yeah. go back to your point, the most, the most of the time, the simple things are the most powerful. So when I shared with him that when he's on a plane, the boots on the plane that hold the plane up mm -hmm. so it doesn't freeze, space technology. When a firefighter runs into a building, the outfit they're wearing is space technology. The tank on the back that holds the oxygen is a space mm -hmm. technology. He says, wow, I didn't know any of this. He's 40 some odd years old. Yep. 
And I didn't know it till I was in my forties. What yeah, is it's just, it's just with us. And, and that's like the point. that atmosphere. And that's the, that's what it should be. Yeah. It's with us. And I don't know, I'm, I still wrestle with, and we could work on it together afterwards. It's the challenge. One of the challenges of our billion hearts and minds and the approach that we're using is how do we get all teachers, 5.2 million schools on earth in every class to just do a little bit of space. I, I do see it happening more and more. I just don't, I, you know, on mass, how, you know, what, do you have to go to that governmental agency to make it happen? Or can it be teacher by teacher, you know, or uh, school it, by school? It, it can be teacher by teacher, and it needs to also be governance by governance. It's mm -hmm. a combination of both. You have to meet them both both ways, yeah. in my opinion. So, so we've got, so it has to be simple. We've kind of gotten to that. How about this? Everything is local. Yeah, and you know we've covered we we have talked about this um, a little bit too, but it's and I it's why I like the mirth thing as well is that um, we can get really wrapped up in this little I don't know what is it five ten mile you know perimeter around us right you know so wrapped in that that we forget that um, you know our there's these terms global and local, right? And my husband has a really great line. It's like, you know, global is the new local. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, the other side of that planet is not that far away, right? And that, you know, there's nothing more obvious than that, than, you know, when you're viewing um, Earth through a spaceship window, it's like, wow. <laughs> Again, back to the, wow, I live on a planet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I'm going to ask you while we're at this point, because I would like to, I'd like to see if it comes out with you when, when you went up in the first time looking down and I, I'd like, if you could tell me your inner thoughts, not the thoughts that you shared on stage as I saw this, that, and the other, but that first time you had the chance to look down, what was going through your mind on the private level, the, the real personal level? I think, first of all, was really a, like a disbelief that I could even be there. Like what, what in the world put me in this place where my face is in front of this window having this just extraordinary experience, right? Yeah. Why? And I mean, I questioned that, you know, before, before even applying to be an astronaut, it's like, oh, no, I can't apply to do that. That's only something other special people get to do, right? And, and, you know, and I'll just tell you, Jay Honeycutt, and one of those people that encouraged me to just pick up the pen and apply, but just disbelief that, first of all, wow, how do we, it's like, I know how we get there. I know the science behind it, but how on earth? I how within mirth? Yeah, wow. how within <laughs> mirth am, um, am I able to be in this place experiencing this? And what was your answer? And I, I don't know that I really, really came to one. I just accepted, I guess, that I was there. Okay. That I, and, and I'll tell you in, in all of that was thinking about my family who just watched me, you know, it is so much more difficult to be a person watching somebody you love launch into space than it is to be the one strapped in, yeah. <laughs> you know, going there. And if there's a focus, I would assume as yeah. compared to the others wondering if oh, you're going to yeah. blow up on the, right. on the ride. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You think about, yeah, I mean, my son was seven when I went to space the first time, you know, God bless the kid watching me 
from, you know, with my husband watching my mom and sisters, you know, and so there was this sense of, I think, you know, and it, maybe these are rhyming words, you know, there was the disbelief and then there was the relief, like, oh, I'm, I'm like looking out, I'm actually here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm alive looking out this window, you know, back at earth, that 7 million pounds of exploding rocket, you know, thrust um, got me here, didn't take me away. And, um, and that was a, a pretty compelling thing to feel too, you know, just that relief of, wow, I made it to this place that I can't believe I'm in. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I think there's all there's all of those feelings, I think, that you've probably heard before. I, I know that you've spoken to my dear friend, Frank White. And uh, I've um, spoken of we've we've had three astronauts, uh, Charlie Bolden, Shang Diaz, and you are the third. I don't go mm -hmm. after astronauts because in my mind, they are people doing a job. They Absolutely. are, they're not a different type of person just because they went up. Doesn't mean they're more intelligent. Doesn't mean Love that <laughs> they, they are not special in terms of gods. They are right. people to do a job. It could be a biological job. It could be a functioning job. They've been taught many skills and someone who goes to the bottom of the ocean, who runs a submarine has also talented skills. So yep. they're the first person on the show, if you want to call it a program, that I'm asking because I want to get down to, I want to go further. I didn't ask Chang or, or um, Charlie. You see, you, you have these feelings. So these, you went over that you got the relief and got that. You're now, you're, you're still fixated. You're still able to look out that window yep. and, or cupola, whatever. What, there's got to be some other things that you've just said. I've, you know, wow, they just flew through my head at lightning speed. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it all is in this, you know, this power of different perspectives and things. But I mean, I'll, I'll just share with you what I shared with my son, you know, the okay. first time I spoke to him um, and was trying to describe, you know, and he was seven, you know, and I'm trying to describe to him what I'm seeing out this window that was so overwhelmingly, you know, indescribably beautiful, right? Yeah. And so I just said to him, I'm like, okay, Roman, I want you to, you know, close your eyes and imagine that you have a light bulb and you're just going to splatter it with all the colors that you know earth to be. And, and then you're going to turn it on, but I want you to turn your head away first. You know, I want you to turn your head away first, turn it on because you need to prepare yourself for this being the brightest light bulb you've ever seen. And so I want you to like kind of look back and let your eyes adjust to it because it is just this glowing, um, iridescent, translucent, again, like all the colors you know are to be like just there in your face, the reality of it. And it is set against the blackest, most crystal clear black I'd ever seen. And I remember him laughing at me. Oh, mommy, I don't have the bright, you know, it was like, you know, a seven-year-old would do with, um, mm -hmm. you know, what do you mean splatter it with all the colors? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, because it's a challenging yeah. concept yeah. Yeah. for a seven-year-old to get their mind around. Even I'm but trying to say to myself, okay, so you've got, and I have to take the pictures out of my mind of, because I've already seen pictures of yeah. earth is to say, what would that be? And I added red and yellow and I added all these other colors all that would have been yeah. like a, a paintbrush full of colors. 
Yep. And that's, and that's what it was like. It was like just, and it was a thing that, an experience that never, never got old. I mean, I wondered, okay, I'm going to be up there living for months at a time. Am I going to fly by the window and just go, eh, no big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's earth out there, you know? No, every time it was, I mean, it just like sucks you into that vortex, but you know, did, to the point. <laughs> what did you, did you say, uh, being an American uh, or knowing geography, did you say to yourself, oh, that's this country. Oh, that's that country. Oh, that's where that is. Uh, did you look for anything in particular based on the angle in which the first site that you had, did you, did you look at and, and say, oh, look at the size. Were there anything, any specifics that you had that were running through your mind at the, well, what was the angle that you saw the first time? Well, what did you see? What, where were you? What relationship to the earth were you? Well, first view, um, of course, we kind of, when we come into orbit around the earth, we're, and so my first views were out the, like the overhead windows or the cockpit windows of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just floating up out of the seat, you know, as soon as you can after getting into orbit, because everybody, that's what everybody wants to do. Yeah, just unbuckle. You got to do it. Yeah. Okay, got to get out, you know, got to see what it's like to float. But I also I want my face in that window. And, um, I, you know, so we're kind of earth facing. The windows are, are earth facing. Yeah. And, um, and you see this like ginormous expanse of black that I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, is I guess that's what infinity is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does it seem is. to go on forever, you know? And, you know, this glowing, colorful planet. I do not remember where we were. It was blue, so lots of water. I mean, if you're going to wager, that's probably what you're going to see when you look yeah. out of the window is, like, you know, a lot of water. And just stunned by it, I guess, by how... Because I had, I think everybody who does fly to space has like this impression in their mind of how gorgeous it's going to be. You know, you look at the pictures, the videos, you talk to your friends, people who've flown before. But I think like so many things, nothing prepares you for the reality you're going to experience at that time. And don't, don't, don't take this as an insult. I'm just saying it as a commentary. It's amazing that, and again, it's not an insult, so please, it's amazing that with such an experience, the description that I'm hearing doesn't help me to see it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm asking, what did, did you see? What landmass? What did, what was the first thing you saw? Where did you, what did you think about land or humans? Did that fly through your head? We're, we're infinitesimal. Oh my God. I can't believe. Wow. The oceans are a massive. I never really thought in that way. I mean, these are the things. And, and it's amazing because I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I still, I just got a splash of all these colors on a planet that's very bright and in the background. Yeah. So do, do you, uh, maybe we got to do some hypnosis here is to pull <laughs> you back. But seriously, so I'm- I think I'm, all I'm, of those it, things, I think all of those things were there. I mean, the, the, I think the, the, you know, the ultimate feeling in it all was um, like back to the everything is local thing is that, wow, you know, this being the farthest I've ever been, you know, I always say that, that I've ever been, because I'd love to go to that moon hut place that you're going to build. 
Um, so we've actually uh, just finished yeah. the designs. We've actually Good. finished all four phases, <laughs> the design. We have how many people will be on it for each phase. We have where the documents almost done of what is being built and how would it be built. All of it's designed. It's about 25 years of development, $1.5 trillion. Wow. Well, uh, I, you know, my hand is up to, um, to visit with, with um, <laughs> we will, we'll, there'll be a room for you. Okay. But I, um, I think that, you know, the thing that struck me very quickly, uh, maybe immediately without knowing it was, wow. And you know, it was back to that planet thing again. It's like there, I am at this farthest place I've ever been. And yet I felt more connected to everything and everyone below me than I had maybe when I, you know, was right down there with my feet in the middle of it. And, and you described, I mean, it's, it's a sense of not just connection, but an understanding, I think of the interconnectivity. The, yes. Everything. The interconnectedness. You know? Yes. And that I think is what, I mean, holy moly, we hold right now and I'm lifting it up with my left hand here, my phone, we hold the whole world essentially in the palm of our hands now right? We are more connected than we have ever been in human history. And I know that just continues to evolve over time. And yet, you know, with our heads down, buried in this little electronic device, I, I don't think we understand or have really grasped the interconnectivity of it all. And that's what was absolutely in my face and the view out the window was, wow, there's not a single thing that ocean really does. It's not an ocean. It's the ocean. <laughs> it's, you know, it's masses of land that are all interspersed between that ocean. And, you know, there's people, people, creatures, you know, embody that whole thing. The planet itself looks alive, you know, at night watching lightning and storms moving across the planet. I mean, I grew up in Florida. I thought a thunderstorm was just over my head. And when it was gone, it was gone. But no, you watch it from space and it's these like tentacles of, of lightning moving from over Florida to wrapping around the planet, you know, to where it disappears from view over Africa somewhere, like, like neurons firing in a brain. And it looked alive. And all of that was just like one, um, like one being that included us, you know, um, especially if you think of it from the mirth ecosystem of things, but and included everyone I know and don't know. <laughs> I mean, just just awesome. And then you you mentioned it too. You know, this idea of was I looking for you know America when I looked out the window, particular country. Um, I wanted to see Florida from space. Yeah. I I thought of Florida as my home. I wanted absolutely when I knew Florida was going to be out the window, I would fly to that window to want to see it and experience it, float around, look at it from different angles. But very quickly, very quickly, I, I you know, I'm not going to give you a, a, was it hours, was it days, but I started realizing that I was, I was thinking about Florida as part of a special place that's a planet that's my home. Earth is my home. Uh -huh. And that even expanded to, oh my gosh, Earth is part of this bigger system of the universe. You know, I mean, you could boggle your mind while you floated in front of the window. And, and I did. I mean, I, during the day, um, if I went to the window during the day, I absolutely had to set the timer on my watch. Otherwise, I would just, I mean, a 90-minute orbit of the planet would go by and I, it would have seemed like a flash. And, you know, that's, 
you know, I want, I, you know, apparently I'm not very good at describing it, but I want, I want no, no, to you, find you, their way. You, to you feel are, that. you just did it, Nicole. <laughs> no, and I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it in a placating way. I'm not trying to make you feel better for it. Is that you hadn't opened up. Yeah. And you're now opening up this this looking for florida and feeling like that was your home and then realizing it's not your home earth is your home and then you probably realize that there are no borders they don't exist in space that these are all artificial constructs they're all connected you did it when you talked about the oceans there is no mediterranean sea there is no atlantic ocean there is no pacific ocean it's just the ocean and yeah. when you see that interconnectedness, there are three million light, uh, three million lightning strikes per day, yeah, per day, and there are forty-four lightning strikes every second around the globe. We don't, we don't see this. We don't know it. And so, now take me from you started to make a transition in your head. You saw that there was an interconnectedness. You saw that you were bigger. You probably, I'm taking a guess here, started to say, what do I need to do because I've experienced this? Yeah, I think it's all, you know, in the end, it's about, it's not just about the experience itself. And, and that doesn't, and it doesn't just have to do with, you know, an experience flying in space. I think we, we all need to consider this, um, is that it's, it's, what do you do with it? You know, what action do you take to just, do you just keep it to yourself? Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. That was so cool. I learned that I live on a planet and everything's interconnected. I mean, no, I, I think, um, you know, and I'll just speak from the astronaut standpoint is that all of us, you know, we don't just feel it's not like, oh, we're obligated. You know, we got to go to space. We have to share this. We want to, it's like, it like bubbles up inside of us. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, to want other people to get the perhaps subtle difference between connection and interconnectivity. And, to, you know, to realize how that can just really positively impact not just your own life, but the way you can, you know, behave with other people and, and the way you treat the planet too. Um, I mean, my mission, what I thought, I guess, was my mission when I retired from NASA was to use my artwork, right? To kind of going back to, you know, not just speaking to the people that already love space, but like to use my art to in some way share what I had experienced with people who might not even know there's a space station and pull them in, whether they like my art or not, <laughs> you know, to the backstory of this international community that's working there to, you know, the ultimate mission of improving life on earth and, um, you know, and to having them want to seek out more about that themselves, you know, and that has expanded more and more for me in different ways. But. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with that, because I appreciate what you're saying very much. Then what is the disconnect? There have been 570 some odd individuals who've been up into space. Is the world that much better? And I, I know we could find pockets and pieces, but just look at the world the way it is today. Is the world that much better because they've been there? What's the disconnect? I, I think so. And I think it, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, what those 500 and something people 
as well as the you know tens of thousands down here on earth and that's just associated with the space station program doesn't even speak to the trillion the infrastructure plus, yep. uh, mm -hmm. you know satellite industry you know that, that's going on yeah there's there's tons <laughs> and, of industries you know, that's going on you know and all of the things that you spoke to that are the you know the beneficial outcome of what's been done there but I, I mean, I personally believe every single one of those 500 and something people are trying in their own way to mm -hmm. purposefully, meaningfully share the experience with their, you know, their community, you know, large and small. Um, and, and I think there's value in that. And everybody does it differently, right? Like I, you know, I decided that art was going to be the path for me. You know, you've got people going out and becoming university professors. Neil Armstrong did that, you know, and I'm fairly certain that he meaningfully, purposefully spoke to his students in a way that hopefully <laughs> at least some, if not a lot of them, went off with that purpose in mind. I will share with you, I haven't shared this with anybody, that of the few people that I potentially would have as astronauts on the line so that we can talk, most of them I would never want to have a conversation with. They were arrogant. They were irresponsible with time. They would set up a meeting and say, ah, David, I've only got 10 minutes. I got something more important to do. They were, they were not the people that were saying, I want to make, I want to make the world a better place. There was an arrogance about who they were. And now I do know several astronauts, but I haven't asked them to be on the program. And, but the few that I thought would be great because of, for some reason, something they did or what they were, I, I haven't had that experience of this enlightenment of a new type of person who sees the world in a different place. And so I'm concerned in the industry of, and again, it's not an industry, but the people who've been to space, that this ecosystem has created its own bubble. And when you can get a million people to love you because you've been to space, you forget about the 7.5 point X billion who don't have any touch with you. They're not connected. And that divide is you look around, we have, uh, we have the six mega challenges, which I think you would heard about. We have climate change, mass extinction. So we're losing 200, 250 sp uh, species per day on this planet. We have 50 million species, yet you very seldom, I don't think I've ever heard a program where people didn't say humans, 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 humans. It is for all species on earth. Project Moon Hut from the very beginning, it's yeah. about all species on earth. If we don't have all, it doesn't make a difference. We have uh, ecosystem collapses happening where entire ecosystems are falling apart on this planet at this moment. And it takes 10 days from an ecosystem to fall apart. Uh, we're seeing displacement happen around the world from climate, uh, from technology, advances, robotics, uh, AI. We're seeing uh, political displacement where we just saw it happen in front of our eyes the past few days. We have unrest happening increasingly from Brazil to Hungary to uh, Crimea, Krem, Ukraine. Uh, to China, even the US, the conflicts that are the unrest. And then the last one is we have this sense of 
uh, explosive impact from things such as we overfish to a point where entire ecosystems are falling apart because there are so many fishing boats. The only data piece I know is there are 800,000 Chinese fishing vessels, 800,000. Look, they need to eat. So you can't take that away. They need to eat. People are doing things to eat, but that's the data point that I have. Our, our world is not sustainable in this way. And so Project Moonhut or the Age of Infinite is infinite possibilities and infinite resources. I'm trying to, I want you, I, I'm, I, you, if you saw my hands, I'm trying to like, come on, <laughs> give me something, help me here. I want to see where that leverage point is. Where's that disconnect? Why, when they go to space, did they not come down and the world change? Um. I don't know, perhaps because there's only 500 and something of them in the 8 billion. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's 500 and something over the history of humans flying in space. That's not 500 right now actively living, being able to get out there and um, speak to the world. Uh, you know, from the first flight of a human with Yuri Gagarin, I mean, he was expressing some of these same things, you know, um, the care of each other. And I, and, I'll just assume that, you know, each other meant, like you say, you know, all life that we share the planet with and the planet itself. Um, it's it's a sentiment that even the, you know, the hardcore test pilot Apollo guys will will share with you when you speak to them and have shared in, in their own way. Um, I know there's a there's I, my husband, he has always the great lines, you know, there's a there is a, you want to bring them on. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> You know, this idea, and we joke about it too, you know, because th this is a human being thing, right? You know, there are those that put the ass in astronaut, and that's true in every, you know, every and I never heard that. But, so you want to put um, the ass in astronaut. Yeah. Okay, very good. <laughs> but, um, but even those, there, there is a, I think, an inner need, a desire to, to share the experience in a positive way somehow. Um, a lot of us are trying to figure out how, how do we expand that, that, you know, that communication of this experience. And, um, you know, I, I talk about using art, right? You know, other people being, you know, going back and working in, a, in the space um, ecosystem. I don't know how mm -hmm. to say the space industry. And, and so, I love like... that you're doing art. I, I absolutely <laughs> love it because, because it's art. Yeah. It's not STEM, <laughs> it's art. And it should be in literature. There should be a, a book, uh, at least one book of a literature class. Is there's a Shakespeare? There should also be a 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. If you're if you're doing theater, there should be how Galileo influenced whatever. There's and it's not. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's. Um... I think there's more of it, but I I'm right there with you. You know, and you know the STEM thing to me, I'm all for our kids learning about science, technology, engineering, and math. But I, I am a, I think I can use this word. It's, it's a harsh word. I am a hater okay. <laughs> I, uh, yep. of, of these acronyms, of these things we put out there to try and force something. And, you know, STEM to me has been one of those things that at the expense of what I remember in school of the humanities and art and social studies and geography even as something that had value. And, um, and I don't see that happening now, you know, I mean, especially for public schools, if they want to get money, they're, 
they're having to focus on the STEM stuff and see you later, art teacher. You know, maybe yeah. somebody will do art in one of their other classes or something. But I think it's the universal communicator. I think it's one of the greatest ways for us to like engage our kids, you know, to help them make that relationship with whatever they're studying, just like space should be part of it. And, and you mentioned earlier with the mirth, the whole mirth concept, you mentioned this idea of, you know, sci-fi to sci-fact kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and embedded in, in the greatest sci-fi is, you know, probably our best future, right? You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a, um, you know, one of science fiction's foremost authors, Larry Niven. Yep. Um, and you may have heard this, this quote before, and he doesn't get credited with it much, if at all, is, um, and usually you only hear the first half of it, but the quote is, the dinosaurs became extinct because they didn't have a space program. <laughs> the, the second half, which I think is even better, is, and if we become extinct because we don't have a space program, it'll serve us right. Now, I, there, I, I mean, it sounds silly. What do you mean, the dinosaurs, you know, yeah. they could never have had a space program, but it's, it's, I guess it goes back to the simple, you know, being the most powerful. I mean, that, just to look at it like that, like, yep, and it will serve us right. I mean, our, our exploration of space, and I'm like detouring now, I mean, our, oh, it's okay. it really, it really and truly is about understanding better understanding who and where we are in all of this establishing our relationship using what we're learning you know even on the international space station how do we as humans explore further off our planet but in all of it how ultimately it's about improving life on earth and i don't know i don't know any of my astronaut colleagues that aren't excited about um, figuring out their own way to try and share that it, in, in great and small ways. Maybe this will help you. When you hear about space, again, not an industry, it's geography, but when you hear about space, you hear about science, research, and exploration. Those are the three words that are all the time used. Yeah. If you're not interested in science, research, or exploration, oh, and then there is to save the human species. It's never, never said to say a million people on Mars will leave nine, uh, will leave 9.99999 billion people on earth. They're still here. Yeah. They're still here. I, that's not a factor. And by the way, anybody who thinks that a million people on Mars in 40 years, you're not going to be on that rocket. Right. So we, our whole model, our whole energy, or my whole energy, the time is, we have to make this world different. And I believe that the technologies, the advancements, the thinking, the paradigm shifting, all of the things you were talking about, when you started to say, I started to realize, I started to understand about when you were looking down on earth. Those are the messages that are very poorly articulated. Yeah. Well, and it's why the the mirth ecosystem that you're talking about is so important it's like um, i mean the moon I, I mean it's like this purpose-built put there i will say by god to <laughs> through whatever process mm -hmm. yeah um you know as part of our world 
and yes. the it benefits is. that can come from it. I mean, mm -hmm. I am all about the moon, man, and I'm not, and I'm about permanent settlement. I will never use the word colonization, but correct. I don't, we don't use the word there. settlement either, but that's okay. Yeah, but but, you know. but at least you're not using colonization <laughs> yeah. because that's a bad word, and we don't yeah. use that either. So I thank you. Word, I, I will say it, but I won't use it. The word collaboration either, and um, but <laughs> no, it, <laughs> that could be a but um, but I just look at it like. Um, and, and again, with the sci-fi to sci-fact kind of thing, you know, if you look at these, you know, kind of the bigger players in this, um, you know, commercial space thing, uh, again, ultimately, it, it does come down to improving life on Earth. But this whole, we're going to escape planet Earth, we're going to become this multi-planetary species within our own solar system and think that's going to save us. It won't. It, it won't. I mean, even in the grand scheme of things, the sun is going to do its natural evolutionary thing in a billion or so years and say goodbye to Mars as well. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, we've got to go interstellar if we're really thinking about expanding humanity. And that's not in our lifetime yeah. right now, even with Chang I mean, Diaz's yeah. engine. No, I want, I, I am looking forward to from wherever on high, I'm watching down on my great grandchildren or whomever that, you know, in hopes that that Star Trek future can become reality. And Star Trek's future and all of these yeah. futures begin with the moon and earth. Yeah. They all and do. They absolutely do. And um, yeah, I mean, you look at, I, you know, I kind of feel like um, the, the recent Blue Origin flight you know, the yeah. suborbital flight that took place and then, you know, God bless them, but the publicity after it just didn't go probably as they hoped. It, they're not about suborbital flight. They're about lifting, you know, Bezos read sci-fi that inspired him to really and truly want to lift the bad stuff off our planet, lift the industry off earth that leaves it as a place where we can thrive where we're not just surviving, where we are thriving in this closed loop system with the resources you talk about, sharing it with all the other creatures in life that, um, that are here in a respectful way and pull that off earth to a place where it becomes a benign so, you know, activity. So, so let's play some timelines here. <laughs> to move earth's bad things off planet how long will that take? Um, I think if we decided to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Seriously decided to do it. In, yeah, if we seriously decided to do it. And, it and, and for instance, and I know you've spoken to people about like space-based solar power before. Okay, that right. One, yeah, I that was like, a John Strickland, yeah. brilliant guy. Absolutely. Oh my brilliant. gosh. And I am going to go back and listen to that again, because I am, the more and more I hear about that, I'm like, why have we not done that? It was, it was scary. I was I was shaking in my boots. I was afraid he was going to ask me a question that I couldn't yeah, answer, you know, even with I my mean, science background. <laughs> holy moly. I mean, like, why have we not done that? From both the money side of things and just the overall longer term, you know, thriving benefit of it is like, you know, I right now I look at this whole, what is it? One to three trillion dollar infrastructure thing that's going on, right? Yep. And I tried to do, I tried to do some research into it to see, okay, all right, I get it. This, this is important stuff to do. You know, we've got to consider the renewable, sustainable energy stuff. Hopefully they're looking at it from the whole life cycle thing. Where are we getting those materials from to how will they? They're not. To? No, they're, they're not. not. They're not. But, and, and that's why, okay, space-based solar power. 
I just use that as my example. Yeah, no, that's a great because, example. You know, because I think about it like, okay, the argument has always been, and I'm naive on, I mean, this is superficial for me, but I still think even in that superficial nature of it, it is a huge thing for us to go after is it's always been the argument, oh, we got to have all this launch stuff. It's going to cost billions of dollars to get this stuff off the planet and into space for us then to be able to sustainably maintain and build this thing in space. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, $3 trillion. Are you telling me that 50 billion of that couldn't be? Really it would it would cost a lot yeah it would cost uh, a lot more than that but let's use that number so the challenge that you the challenge and i asked the specific question intentionally in a decade i think if we decided to so it, the challenge uh let me step back for a moment to help a little bit more if you were going to build a home right now decide to build a home how long would it take for that home to be built Oh yeah, with this whole COVID thing, I'm probably no, no, not. Let's assume COVID was gone. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I, I, for a moment, I lost track. Eight months. Okay. Eight months. Let's say I was going to build a a mall, a nice size mall. How many years would that take? Start to finish. Could have done sooner than my house with what I've seen (laughs) going up around me lately. Um, Okay, I, I I would put a year on it. Maybe. Okay. And uh, we've had built, it could take in terms of getting permits, going through, it's years, sometimes decade before a mall is actually built. I don't want any more malls, but well, let's, uh, I'm, not, I'm just thinking of big structures. That's because you're in Florida, you don't have skyscrapers. How long, I live in a community of 45, 4,500 people. Sorry about that. I'm That's okay. I live in a community of 4,500 people. How long would it take to house, build, put together, have them thrive, put them and, and have all the supplies that they need to be able to have a community of 4,500 people? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. But that's, these are the questions that are, when, when we talk about space, we take these jumps that are very, very large. We could do it in 10 years. I think so. I, I mean, we, I still, but that's I if, still we, if we with the wherewithal, we could do space-based solar power. But to take yep. all to take all of our manufacturing and put it off Earth, it will not be in time for the climate change to impact the fact that they believe they believe that in thirty years the Middle East will be at approximately fifty to sixty C temperatures consistently, and the displacement will come from that will be massive. It, in the next 30 to 40 years, and I'm not trying to make blow smoke as if things are bad, but let's assume that the oceans really have the challenges. Let's assume that this, the forest fire that in Russia is bigger than every other forest fire on the entire planet combined right now. Do we have that time? If a building, a home takes eight months, the challenge is the timelines don't work. Well, I think we have, I mean, I think we can never look at it from a singular solution, right? Mm-hmm, okay. Correct. Space-based solar power is going to save the world, right? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think we can ever look at it that way. But I think if we ignore that that solution could be, you know, in parallel with all the other kinds of things we're going to have to do, can be a significant long-term, you know, um, positive... <laughs> It comes down to your number. It comes down to your number one. We've not made space simple. Well, and I, you know, um, 
so I want, you know, there's a story I wanted to share with you because I think it, you know, it, it's when you were talking about looking out the window and seeing the line of your driveway and the road and the, you know, the window and all that stuff. Um, like establishing this relationship kind of thing with all mm -hmm. that's around us. I mean, I have vivid memory as a kid. And I think this comes down to everything is local thing too, is like, I have vivid memory as a kid, maybe 10, 11 years old, sitting on my bedroom carpet, you know, bedroom rug with um, a Nat Geo magazine that was about space. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, my family, we, we, you know, what was it once a month? I can't remember what it was. So you got na the National Geographic. National Geographic. Okay. Because you said magazine. Nat Geo. Yellow, and I'm thinking, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I had the whole, I had like yeah. 12 years or 15 years of collection <laughs> on my shelf. So yes. The yellow magazines with the numbers on them. And, you know, they were awesome. Yeah. And, you know, right beside the sets of encyclopedias that I wish I would have saved because they probably would have been of huge value. You know, was the, it Br the, the a, a, Br Britannica interweb. or World Book? Was it Britannica <laughs> it, or World Book? I, you know, they, we had both. And then we had one that my dad and my dad, my grandparents had gotten. It was these black, oh, like wow. leather bound. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe we didn't keep those. And they had, I remember looking in those. Okay total you know distraction from the story but i remember looking at those and having my first experience seeing those what we knew of like the deepest undersea life kind of thing yeah, those yeah. fish that look like the ones that are in comic books and stuff yes but you know those kinds of things but yeah the ancient interweb right and um but i remember sitting on my floor with this National Geographic magazine. And the thing I would always do as a kid was immediately go to the middle of the magazine where the, the centerfold was. Oh yeah, there was always and, a big picture yeah, map infographic cool type poster. thing. Yes. Yeah, really, really good. It was either animals or you know someplace else on earth, or in this case, it was pull out the poster and lay it out flat on the floor. Uh -huh. And it was kind of this oval drawing on a white background. And the oval drawing was, it was either known or observable universe. I can't, I can't remember which, and I'm not, you know, I don't know that it matters, but it was like this oval, you know, this oval um, drawing. And of course, the first thing I would always do with that, you know, that kind of thing was, you know, go look for the, you are here, yep. um, you know, spot on, on this, this picture. And, you know, and then look at, and it's this tiny little dot of you are here. And then, and I remember just focusing on that little dot at first and kind of looking in the immediate area around it and then just like like jaw dropping almost realizing as i looked <clears throat> out to the expanse of the oval and thinking as i got to that white border <laughs> on the piece yeah. of paper like oh my gosh what is this what do they mean by known universe is all this white stuff the unknown universe and or is that i mean i mean i remember thinking is that heaven is that uh, okay. what is that infinity you know is that what infinity means all this white stuff and we just don't know yet and it's so flat why is it so flat and then i i mean like like this visceral feeling of just looking to the left and right and up and down on the sheet of paper and to my carpet on my bedroom floor uh -huh. and then lifting my head up and possibly and a shag carpet nonetheless. yeah if, in undoubtedly a shag maybe of a lime color or lime orange yellowy kind of blend yeah that you know then 
creeped out up, you know, I mean, I remember looking up and out the window of my bedroom and just looking out and thinking, holy moly, is that all the unknown universe? I mean, I just couldn't get my brain wrapped around it, right? And that has stuck with, I mean, it has really stuck with me. And it's why, and maybe these are things we have to do, you know, just bring this like this, just like overwhelming reality and these things we just don't know. Just keep reminding ourselves of how much we don't know, right? And being okay with that because we're curious and we want to keep knowing more. Um, but I, that just stunned me as a kid. And I think about that all the time. And it's amazing and because I, I didn't look at those. I was more interested in the rainforest or yeah. under the ocean or the other pictures. I mean, I loved those too. That's no, I mean, but I, I just—they never yeah. the one that what the what you're talking about never fascinated me enough. Yeah, it's interesting. Even, it's really cool though because I think that um, you know, in that little dot, you know, that little dot of the you yeah. know, here on that map, it's like think about how much is in that little dot. It's like oh. looking at the Cassini. You know, I think about you know, as humans, what we've gone to the moon, right? That two hundred fifty thousand miles, you know, within that Mirth. Yeah. ecosystem everything that we've done as humans in space physically humans being right there, has yeah. been in orbit of earth yes. right you know but we've sent these robotic missions out to you know other places in the solar system and you know every single one of those missions we learn yeah we learn all about more about saturn right and those yeah. iconic rings around mm -hmm. saturn but what is the picture we want to see we want to see the picture of ourselves with Saturn. So we're like excited by, or at least I am, I don't, I try to share this with people like, oh, hey, here's this really cool picture of Saturn and its rings. But look at that little dot of light underneath the rings. That's us. And it's kind of the Sagan thing, you know, that's us, all we know that, you know, the whole thing it there. Right, is all right there. But in, in that little dot is all of what you just said, the rainforests, the oceans, the the Arctic and the Antarctic, the the otherworldly places right here on Earth that if you didn't know, you might think it was Venus or Mars, you know, acid lakes in Ethiopia that have yeah. life in them. Yes. We can't live there. No. Nope. <laughs> but there's life thriving in those places. And so I just, I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. We I have... think you, you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but ahead, you no. with your love of art, um, I hope you know about the studio at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. No, I don't. Um, oh my gosh, you need to, and I will introduce you to the, the guy who runs it. His name is Dan Goods. And they are all about trying in the simplest ways to communicate what these, you know, these robotic planetary missions are doing. And they have... Um, they have an exhibit, especially since you taught, you know, like this dot of light thing and what's all all that's going on in there that we should just be in awe of. Um, they um, have this exhibit where it's, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of it. But essentially what they've done is they've filled six rooms with grains of sand. And at the center of this whole collection of rooms is a microscope with one grain of sand that has a hole drilled into it. Wow. And um, that hole represents, I think it's our whole galaxy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And th that hole in the grain of sand. And then the six rooms of sand 
represent that known universe that was in that little oval drawing on. Yeah. And I'm, I like got goosebumps. I mean, it's not just on my arm, it's... my legs. I just thinking about that. First of all, I can't get over the fact that you could drill a hole into a grain of sand, <laughs> let alone that that's representing our, you know, our whole galaxy. But um, I just think it's, it's mind boggling. And yet it's like, wow, we, you know, it, this place we are, this mirth that you describe, perhaps the most special place in the universe. Per, per, perhaps. And, and perhaps. for right now, we, we don't, yeah. we need to look at it. To, the Age of Infinite podcast series, which I shared with you, is designed so that I could learn. I mean, that's, that's yep. the reason I do. I don't interview people who I can't learn something from because I believe if I can learn from you, I can learn from somebody else. What I've been finding fascinating though, because I have had to learn a lot about the, uh, the different industries within the Mirth ecosystem we're building, is that we just brought on KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and Deloitte. Mm-hmm. Three, the, the, there's four, we're talking Ernst & Young, but there are four major accounting firms in the world. And those are the four. We, one of our teammates connected with them and said, look, we'd like you to help us with this project. And, they, and to each one of his contacts, they were fighting in the office who would be on the line, <laughs> who would be in the meeting, because there's actually a physical meeting and a, and a distributed meeting. They were fighting. We had 18 people. I think it was uh, maybe 16 people total. Only one of them was a space person. Yeah. All the others were so excited to learn about something new. And they felt that they contribute because their value is tax and legal uh, and types of advice. So they are going to contribute in their own way to the Mirth ecosystem with helping us for tax advice around the world and how they can communicate and how they can bring things together. But it wasn't the conversation you'd expect because no one's talking about, oh, wow, did you see that rocket go off the other day? Yep. It was, they watched the videos that you've watched on projectmoonhut.org and in the right corner. And they've said, I get it. We're solving for earth. Yep. And, and one person said, now I go home and tell my family, they all love space and I don't, I can tell them I'm working on a project that's going to change the future. Yep. And that's the connection that I think art and, 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 and design and, and constructs can do. Yeah. It's, it, they're not science people. They're a tax accountant people or the tax people. So I mean, some of the best audiences I have, you know, I'll get invited to go speak to the senior leadership team at Johnson and Johnson. Oh, yeah. I I mean, like one of the 10 people, perhaps a person who invited me because they thought, oh, this person, you know, Nicole will be interesting for our group to hear from knows about space, Mm -hmm. that there even is a space station, you know? But they leave, they leave excited about it. They leave, I think, like you're saying, trying to establish, okay, what, you know, what could I, as part of Johnson and Johnson with our mission do to, um, you know, take advantage of, and I mean that in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, it um, is. Participate in this whole geography of space to ultimately benefit life on earth. And, I mean, and I, that's that's what I get from them when I leave. It's like, oh my gosh, that is the local realm. <laughs> that that is the local. And I, yep. the reason I brought it up is you made this jump with Bezos, 
and his desire, which I, I'm, it's admirable to move everything off planet Earth. It just is not in time. It's like someone's going to be drowning in a pool. Uh, I'm going to drive 20 miles away to get the uh, life preserver, and then I'll be back. Yeah, but I still think we have to do it. No, no, we I still have to do it. That's to do a, it. To realize, I love it. I share with our team that sometimes I go negative to go positive. Mm-hmm. It's not that we wouldn't get up every morning and do what we're doing. I think we can, we're going to solve it. It's not even a question in our mind. Yeah. It's just very, pr- the point is it's got to be more pragmatic. It's that I worked in a rock quarry. Mining is complex. Yeah. I managed a large rock quarry. You need big equipment, heavy equipment. You need a lot of equipment. You need to be able to dig and blast and do and that's only the first phase. Then that material right. has to go to a foundry or a sorting. And then that has to be burned and hel- melted and turned into rolls. And then that has to go to another factory so that they can make the back of your iPhone. Right. And there are 500 companies that make that iPhone, the parts of it. So the point is that quarry needed massive amounts of, mat- of equipment. We have not we, we don't have anybody living on the moon right now. So the timeline for the achievement of moving everything off earth, which I believe we should be working towards, yeah. but the timelines don't make sense. And we're about, I think that the challenge that we want to express and we're bringing you on board, that's how we do it, bring people like you on, is we wanna change that narrative. What is real, what is pragmatic? What can we do? What can we actually make happen in a, in a timeline? And that's what we work on. So let's get to this next one because I'm interested in hearing your mechanical <laughs> life support system. What's your mechanical well, life support system? Well, I mean, the ISS, the International Space, is a mechanical oh, life support system. I didn't, right? I didn't yep. even make that connection. Yeah, so. and I, I think about it like, you know, it's one of the easiest ways, I think, to to express this idea of a model, you know, that can help us thrive here on Earth. And, you know, we do, you do a really good job, you know, with our spaceships. We've done a really good job building, you know, massive ones like the space station that, that's as big as a football field if you lay it down on the ground, you know, that um, as mechanical life support. So we, the fleshy ones, can you know even do the science or work there, right? Uh, live there. We build these mechanical life support systems, and we do it in a way where we are trying to mimic as best we can what Earth does for us naturally, right? And um, we live there. You know, we've done it. We live there, and I think about it from a standpoint of it's like, wow, you know, we go there, and as a crew, every day on board that mechanical life support system, we are acutely aware of how much CO2 is in our atmosphere, of how much clean drinking water we have, of the integrity of that thin metal hull, and absolutely aware of the health and well-being of all of our crewmates. And we know at a very basic level that we have to do that to survive, you know, and if we have any hope of thriving there, which I, I think we do. And when I think about your, you know, your, um, your moon hut project and going to a place where there, there aren't like, you know, it's not a welcoming mm-hmm. environment there. Nope. 
It's not just saying, hey, come live on the surface of the moon like you do on Earth. There's, there's none of there's, that. There's no right? welcome sign up. There's none of that. Wait, we are essentially going to have to either the, turn the moon into or build the hut in a way that it is a mechanical life support system that mimics as best we can what Earth does for us naturally. And, uh, and I, I love it. That, I, I never heard it that way. I love it. <laughs> I just it and, and it's it's simple, isn't it? I mean, you really it, it is it, very like, simple wow, once you once you simple. said it that way because <laughs> it took away we we have the narrative that the things that we need to solve for to live on the moon are going to be the same things we need to solve for to live on Earth. Yeah. Also, the International Space Station is not self-sustaining. There is almost no city on planet Earth that is self-sustaining. Right. meaning they get supplies, spices, materials, metals. I mean, we're not self-sustaining anywhere. Yeah. And and the moon hut and the four phases of the moon hut will not be self-sustaining. We will right. create an ecosystem between the moon and earth and supply it with the things that it needs. Yeah. So and I, the space station, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's probably the best example of living off the grid that you can find. Uh -huh, but yeah. yet you're right. There's not, you know, and it's why I think about stuff like, you know, heading to Mars in a spaceship that's, it's not going to be that big round rotating one that we see in the movies, like the Martian. <laughs> it's going to be a little bit bigger capsule than they went to, a, you know, to the moon with, with a little bit of a service module, you know, bit kind of thing that's a little bit bigger. But, you know, they're struggling to figure out where do you put the toilet and how do you exercise on there, let alone thinking about how, how do we supply food for the people that are traveling nine months, even on, at this point, on you know, Franklin's um, engine to get, you know, to get to Mars, it's like, you can't resupply. So what are you going to do? We have to do this moon thing. <laughs> I, I, I love you. I'm, I'm, I, if you're here, I, well, in, it's America. So let's assume I was living in another country. I'd give you a kiss on both sides of your cheeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it is. And it's, and it's not just because we want to go to Mars. It is, it is, I think the ultimate in the moon is the ultimate in how we, do that lifting of the the damaging things off of earth how we establish a new place in our mirth ecosystem where we are also living sustainably in that environment as well but we yep. will absolutely have to create we're going to have to like basically turn the moon into a spaceship so if you and if you think here's a way to think about it in a little different construct is if we were going to build something in antarctica we'd have to set it up yep. supply it if we were to set something in Sahara Desert, that would be very difficult. If you didn't have roads, you'd have to figure out how to get there and how to thrive in that environment. Mm -hmm. At the middle of the rainforest, you'd have to use helicopters and different tools and set up generators and do. But to set something up at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, where the yep. pressure is so immense, it would crush anything. There's no light. That would be just as difficult or maybe even more difficult than going to the moon and building. So instead of what I try to share with people is it's not that we're trying to go to the moon. We're trying to bring the moon closer to us. And one of our German team members said, so you're kind of making it like another continent, David. And I hadn't thought about that way. I said, no, yeah, we're just, yeah. It's, it's a construction project. We're doing a construction project on the moon. We're going to transport back and forth. We have to have people there and we're going to build it. And because we build it there, we will learn things that will impact how we live here. And those yeah. things will turn around and solve for Earth. Well, exactly. I think we can purposefully go into it with the idea 
that's kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's a later topic here, but we can do it now. The, this idea of off the earth for the earth. It's yep. exactly what we're talking about. I mean, that whole space station motto came from my ke friend, Kevin Ford, one of my um, astronaut bug classmates who, when he was getting ready to fly on his space station flight, they were trying to come up with a motto to use on their patch for, okay, um, yeah. for, their, for their expedition. And they're like, oh, off the earth, for the earth. And then, of course, the space station program latched onto it because it is the perfect, <laughs> it's the perfect motto for what we're doing, you know, on the International Space Station as this international community of 16 countries, five international space agencies working peacefully, successfully together for over 20 years now, you know, ultimately about improving life on earth. And so it's stuck. I, I mean, I would argue that it applies directly to what you're talking about with Moon Hut is especially if you go in with it purposefully thinking that we're establishing this presence on the moon but we're doing it you know ultimately with the goal of um, positively improving life on earth and that's and, like for everyone and that you you said it perfectly it's not the end game a lot of projects are that's the end game yeah. our end game is improving life on earth for all species mm -hmm. so therefore this is one piece uh, we don't call it, and one of the videos I actually, it's called Moon Hut Mission, but we've changed it. It's the Moon Hut Project, like you have a, a construction project. Mm -hmm. So there's the Moon Hut Project, there's the Moon Hut Lever, and there's the Moon Hut Purpose. The Moon Hut Project is the building of the infrastructure and everything necessary. And I'm going to share this. The, the, the first, the Moon Hut will have eight people, the industrial park will have 90, the uh, extended stay will have 578 and the community will have 1,644 people. Okay. Uh, we've designed what that will be built. The build out is, but that's not the end game. The end game is not to live on Mars on moon. The end game is that those innovations and those lessons, the experiences, the materials, the new things we do all change for the 10 billion people left on planet earth yep. and the 50 million species. So the, yes, the international space station is a great example, but I had never thought about it as mechanical life support system, which is yeah. really, really, you got me on that one. I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, it's so perfect. And it's why I think that, you know, I really do think it is this, this model that if we look at it, not just from the technical mechanical side of it, but both the way the humans are living there. And that's, you know, this whole idea of being crewmates, not passengers, right? That's that, what I was, I, so I yeah. was, I was wondering what you were going, because there's, there's the controversy that has happened over the two launches and the discussions that just happened in terms of were they astronauts, were they not, not. And then, so no, when you wrote this, I, I, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, she is willing to step maybe, into the maybe. mud, but let's take yours and follow yours because it's a probably yeah. a better conversation. Crewmates, not passengers. Yeah, I mean, I you know, not no, I don't, I yeah, I don't want to have that that other conversation. No, we don't need to have it. Yeah, it, and there's Doesn't many help. ways to have it, but we don't need to have it. No, I look at it like, um, you know, we very deliberately when we um, set up the International Space Station program with the partner countries and you know these tens of thousands of people on on earth that are facilitating and making it possible. And then the, you know, six or seven crewmates that represent those, you know, 16 countries working together as one crew on that space station. 
I mean, I get questions all the time. It's about, oh, can, Nicole, you know, you're a U.S. astronaut. You know, do you get to go? Can you float around the whole space station if you want? Can you go into the Russian side? <laughs> can, I go, can I go into the Russian side? Yeah. You know, do I take vacation in the European module? You know, that's right. kind of <laughs> and it's like, it's one. Well, they have espresso over there. Yeah. That's yeah, why you go. Do. You go for the espresso. I do for the coffee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one space station with one crew one integrated international crew that's on one mission you know i mean there's all kinds of you know um projects and experiments going on that are delivered to the station and operated by the different countries or together but ultimately it's all you know i had one commander during my time on the space station and oh there is only one commander at any oh, given time for the whole thing and that do they rotate is is there how is that done so the crews like so uh, when i got to the space station and got dropped off there um it was a crew of six and it was uh, a russian commander gennady padolka was commander when i got there of all six of us and then um after a couple months um he and two of my crewmates went home and command uh was turned over to um Frank Devena, who was the first European commander on board the station. And so it rotates out, it, you know, as the crews, as the people are changing up there, the commander role is changing as well. And, and for a, so it could be any country, it could be, how do, how do they determine who's Well, in there's this whole multilateral um, committee that's made up of representatives of the five different um, international space agencies, which are from Japan, Europe, Russia, Canada, and the U.S., and they have they have established their rules of engagement, right? And they've done that for everything from how do you select, you know, crews and commanders to how are we going to divvy up the time and the resources that are available on the station for the science that needs to be be done? How are we going to um, assign people to do the spacewalks that need to be done? You know, all, all of these things are you know they've very thoughtfully put these rules of engagement in place, and that doesn't mean that there aren't controversies and there aren't, you know, differences of opinion and those kinds of things. But somehow, because they've established the the greater mission of, uh, you know, of working together for the benefit of life on Earth, they work through those differences, you know, and to come out with what's the best for everyone. Right. And sometimes that doesn't make everybody happy, but they figure out how to get get OK with it. Right. Do, do you uh, do you meet the passengers, the, the crew uh, before you actually go up so you know who you'll be with for the next six months or whatever? For the be? most part. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, the overall astronaut cosmonaut community um, is relatively small. Right. And yeah. you you really get to know, even if you weren't going to fly with somebody in space, you get to know them through the years of training that you're doing or. Um, for instance, when I was assigned to my first flight, which was going to be a long duration um, space station mission, that was three years before I flew. So I was getting to know my crewmates, training with them um, in all the international partner countries. Uh, my family knew their families. We, I mean, you become family for life, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's really pretty cool. It's awesome. You know, I know right now I could send my son to pretty much any country in Europe or mm -hmm. in Russia or in Japan or Canada. And there would be people there that would take care of him. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. Uh, 
having having lived around the world and experiencing and having worked in over 50 countries that uh, the understanding of the interconnectedness of people that not every person of every culture is bad even if you see it on the news not every culture believes the same things that you see when you hear the media that there are really amazing people all over this planet yep everywhere uh, yeah and i mean i look you know we in the beginning we talked about like it's not all about the technical side i mean it's the people right so I think when we look historically at the significance of the International Space Station, you know, there's going to be, you know, wondrous amounts of scientific and technical things that are going to come from it that are ultimately about improving life on Earth. But oh my gosh, the relationships that we have established, the partnerships that we've developed through this that I think are going to continue to grow with more and more countries is I think that's the real power in it. I mean, and I believe that it's not just positively things positively happening with these people, you know, in the different space agencies or on the space station. But I really believe that some of the stuff that we see going on right now between countries that are partnering on the International Space Station program, I think they are tempered even, that they that we are in a much better position with the way those relationships are managed because of the the relationships we have through the International Space Station program than they would be if we didn't have that in place in space. And I, I would believe that too. It, there's, yeah. a, there's a connectedness that you can't avoid. Yeah. That it, it happens. We, we are sharing our lives in this one experience. And therefore, it, one of the surprising things that I didn't realize until one of our team members was sharing uh, it's not commonly known that when the, when the shuttle was uh, program was ended how did people get up to the international yeah. space station and i didn't know this but the russians had been uh, the americans went to russia mm-hmm. and they hopped on the soyuz and they went up and the russians yeah. for 10 years there's a there's a whole political economic side of it but they still were working together and the guy who's on our team says you do know that the soyos is the most successful most most trusted <laughs> rocket that has ever been launched it's launched thousands and thousands of times in different capacities and this is a very tried and true rocket yeah and i didn't know that right and you know the thing the thing that's cool about that is that you can step back even further right so we had th- this relationship you know that that started really i guess as a race to space right um you know from the time of sputnik and all of that um the 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 partnerships the friendships that have developed because of it are so incredible i mean i look back it just recently was i think the 50th anniversary of that really significant um, Apollo Soyuz mission, right? Where in space you had, it was the first time that these two, you know, what you could call rivals here on Earth, physically came together in space. So an Apollo capsule and a, a, at the time, Soviet Soyuz capsule docked together in space. These crew members, the, the, the US astronauts and the Soviet cosmonauts had trained together on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they came together in space, opened those hatches, and cosmonaut um, commander Alexei Leonov reached his hand across the hatch, and U.S. commander NASA 
Um, Tom Stafford reached his hand across the hatch and they shook hands in space and spent time together in space. Alexei Leonov, an artist, drew um, pencil portraits of all of the crewmates. Tom Stafford still has that portrait over mm -hmm. his, his fireplace at home. And those two people, you know, not only did we establish this relationship between the countries in space that from that point on has been very, very positive, but those two people, lifelong friends lifelong friends. I've worked in Russia. I've worked in St. Petersburg. I've worked in Moscow. I've had unbelievable times with my unbelievable friends who are Russian yeah. and living in Hong Kong. We had tons of Russians that were friends yeah. and I have tons of Chinese friends and I have tons of mm -hmm. pick a country in the world. Yeah. And they came about and, and that's the type of thing that our world should see. And I think that space has that ability to create or the, the Mirth ecosystem will help to create Think about it for, um, I, I, we all see ourselves on earth, but when there is a moon and an earth and there's, there's people living between them and on the moon, then where do you associate with? Well, we're, we're all part of one mirth ecosystem mm -hmm. and it changes the construct. It changes your entire perspective. If you think if you're living on the moon and you're looking back, where are you? Who are you? What do you represent? And do you represent the moon now? Do you represent Earth? Are you Mirth? And it, there are that... different sci-fi shows that would give you different <laughs> <laughs> ideas about how <laughs> I'm, I'm counting on the Star Trek future. The uh, the uh, look at it. Yeah. I, th there's one thing I'll bring it up with Star Trek future that I think is amazing is that first of all there is a Scotty. Uh, there should not be a lot of people in the engineering rooms, period. By that point in time, I think we right, have a right. lot of the real robotics. Uh, <laughs> and when someone has a job, they don't move out. So how do you move up or change? So there's a lot of challenges, but I love Star Trek. I think it's a great series and it, it makes people question the, who they are as human beings. Yeah. So well, we have that. Yeah, who and where we are, you know? <laughs> so with the crewmates and not, uh, passengers, when you right. are, it brings the world together. What's the one most, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm doing an interview because it's, you're teaching me, but one of the things that popped into my mind is what's the one experience that you had with somebody else who was a crewmate that you, it's like, it's going to in, inevitably go down with you when at the end of your life, you're going to say that was the time that I really felt different than any other time. What, oh did gosh. you have anything like that? I think there were a lot of those, um, you know, different kinds of things, you know, floating in front of the window with our heads bouncing together, you know, look, I think all of us in one way or another experience the same kind of thing, you know, that awe and wonder through the, mm -hmm. you know, through the window that I imagine that uh, while that was happening, all of us kind of thinking of what, what we've just been talking about, this kind of common ground stuff, you know, this is, this is about the people, not so much. the. But did you say it? Did you have that? You were, you were bouncing around looking, but was there a conversation that you had just getting to know you, you're a personable person. You yeah. want to be, bring the world together. Art is something that's not typically brought up when it's talked about space, even though there is. Did you have one of those conversations where you shared to a point where you had never thought you'd share because of this? 
Wow. I mean, I think, you know, we had those kinds of conversations almost every night around floating around the dinner table. I, I really do. You know, some of them are probably more profound than others, but I think in one way or another, we were always talking that way. I mean, we felt, I mean, honestly, I felt, I felt totally comfortable with all of those people that I was on, on these missions with. And especially during the long duration one where you really are, you're living together for months at a time on this space station. And um, there's one, I, I guess there is, there are a couple experiences. There's, um, there's a picture that I show in, in all of my presentations, whether it's to adults or kids. Um, and I think gives, it gives a real sense of, you know, just what it's like to be in space. We're all in our um, blue kind of what we call our formal wear <laughs> uh, in space, the blue flight suits, yeah. with our, you know, with kind of a decoration across the front, our country's flags, our mission patches on them. And we're floating in this one area. There's there's nine of us at the time because three people had come up before three went home. You know, at, when I was in space, normal crew size was six, and so we had nine for about a ten day period, and we're all floating like in different directions. Like I'm what you would think of as hanging upside down with you know with my crewmate Max and Ramon, and you know people are coming in from the sides and up from the bottom, and we're all flashing a peace sign. <laughs> <laughs> And we all have these big red clown noses on. And it's his, I mean, it's a really, and NASA didn't want to release this image at first because they thought, oh, this makes it look too, you know, like our astronauts aren't serious enough with their work up there. And um, we protested and were able to get it, get it released and use it in presentations and all that kind of stuff. Because those are the kinds of pictures I think that really show the human and human spaceflight, right? And I show, I show this picture because to me, and we laughed about this. We had this conversation as, as when we got done doing, you know, this photo shoot for ourselves, because it reminded me of how the best, the best crewmates, you know, and I would expand that to whatever, 8 billion people here on earth mm -hmm. <laughs> is they're the kind that, you know, you're going to enjoy the experience with. Right? There's personality. You're going to make the most of your time that you have in this, this special place, you know, wherever that might be. And then at the same time, they are the people that you know when it hits the fan, as it will, it will not always go as planned. Mm -hmm. They are the people that absolutely you can count on to have your back. And they know that they can count on you to have theirs. That, I mean, that's what I see when I look at that picture. And those are the kinds of things we, we would talk about. And, you know, I, I'm almost, there's a, there's a little side of me that wants to tear up. I had never thought of everybody sitting around having dinner. I had never thought of it not being as scientific as it's proposed to be. I had never thought of it as, uh, as the familiar side because that's not the image that's portrayed. It's science, research, and exploration. Yeah. And when I, 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 I jumped to Thailand, I did something. I, I was getting a massage in Thailand. It's very common. I was, mm -hmm. no, was it Thailand? No, I was in Bangladesh. So Bangladesh, went upstairs in the hotel, got a massage. 
became friendly with the people, started talking, and they say, we're Thai people. We just happen to be doing our work here. And they said, how would you like to go uh, to come to a party tomorrow night? And I said, uh, I'm going to have to ask because it's fairly dangerous for a, a, an individual right. at my height and my color. And so I asked the people and they said, absolutely not. You can never do this. This is so dangerous. <laughs> so the next day I go up and get another massage. And as I'm get, we're done going down the elevator it was the end of the day. This woman says, the woman is with me. She says, what floor are you on again? Because mm-hmm. I said, I'm not going. And she, she knows what floor and she lets right. it go by. So we go to the basement. Oh, to the down floor. And I, I said, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to. And she and I see a van and I said, I'll go. And a murder van. <laughs> I, well, that's exactly. I wasn't going to go in the in the small I, 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 because it was a hotel van. So I'll go in the right. van if that person will take us from the hotel. And she had pointed to where we were supposed to be going from the top of this building. And we start driving and I pull out my phone and I have no power. So yep. now I don't have any communications. And we're driving and we drive right by the building she talked to. And I turn around back to her and she said, okay, maybe it's a little further. (laughs) (laughs) We go, we go to this place. I'm scared to death to get out. And of course I got out and we, I went to a Thai party that whenever you have a, you move into a new country, uh, Thai people, Thai individuals will have a, a party. They're not supposed to in this building and structure. The police actually came. They told me to shut up. Do not say a word. Do not because we could be in big trouble. Right. But we ended up having a party and uh, I stayed till two in the morning, four in the morning because of uh, it was the safest time for me to leave. Long story to it. But the end point was, I remember that story. And Mm -hmm. when you said yours, I almost teared up because I didn't feel that the space industry crosses that line of making us because that's what project moon Knight is yeah. it's not making us feel like we're inclusive that we're normal that we're sharing our life's experiences that this is just part of earth it's part of where we live we live here it doesn't do that so sorry it was a long story and i even cut it very short it i i never thought what you just said, never in a million years. And I've been doing this now for seven years. So <laughs> that, that to me, I don't know if it's pathetic or sad or terrible or horrible, but it's not the way it should be portrayed. Well, you know, it's funny because um, everybody, you know, I'll go to speak somewhere and everybody will, you know, kind of joke around, you know, even if it's an adult thing, you eventually get this question and it, Oh, you know, my friend wants to know what it's like to, how, how do you go to the bathroom in space, right? <laughs> yep. And, and it's because it's not so much about how do you go to the bathroom in space. I mean, you know, there's, there's a fun way to tell that story, but it's more about, again, this idea of the human in human spaceflight. Like, you know, well, it's, I it's never, the connectedness. Someone yes. says, I go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. How do you do it? Yeah. Yeah. But you'd and, never, you'd never ask that on earth though, by the way. Well, yeah. Well, like I would never say to you, Nicole, yeah. explain to me, how do you go to the toilet on right. earth? Right. <laughs> but, but people want to know. And it's because they're trying to make a connection. They're trying to establish a relationship with this place that seems so foreign to them. Right. And it's kind of like the first time you go to Japan and you've got the, 
hole in the floor toilets that are you know nice ceramic beautifully yep, done yep, but yep. they're still doing the hole in the floor still... and you're like oh my gosh yeah um, you gotta have good aim yeah and you know what in space i'll just tell you aim and speed that's what it's yep. all about with the back and the vacuum yes. but um but i think it's important because it is about the human and human space flight it is about living there not just working there it's the only reason that I even brought a paint kit with me. I never would have thought about that on my own. But the woman, Mary Jane Anderson, I high five her, thank her every time I see her, is she was one of my flight crew equipment people. And she would help us get our stuff ready to take to space. She got all the official, you know, here's your five pair of underwear that you get for your three month mission. Here's your <laughs> one pair of pants, you know, whatever it was. And she helped us get that ready. But she also, um, when I flew uh, on the space shuttle, we got this like little, I don't know, I think of it like toiletry bag size thing where we could bring up some personal items with us. And, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, I need to make sure I take, you know, pictures of my family, my son's little, you know, stuffed dog and my husband's um, crucifix or wedding ring or, you know, things like that, you know, to share it with um, the people that, you know, I wanted to share the experience with. And, and she's like, you know, Nicole, you ought to think about taking something with you. You're going to be there for months at a time. You're going to be living there. Something that you enjoy doing on earth, you should take with you to space. And I mean, I had thought about my favorite book and, you know, stuff like that. She's yeah. no, you need something to do. <laughs> no, she's, she's absolutely it's, right. Oh my gosh. And so that's where the paint kit came from. Hmm. And I, I mean, honestly, I thank her every day. And it's like, that's one example of how we're doing that. You know, art has been in space forever. Alexei Leonov with his orbital sunrise drawings and those portraits of the, the crewmates, musical instruments, um, people writing poetry. The If you weren't a photographer before you went to space, you become one. Um, but it's, it's the human side of being there. And well, that's what people want to know about. And that is part of where uh, we have conversations about even the con the context. And I don't want to get to the discussions of what just happened on Earth. But if you're an accountant in the industrial park, are you an astronaut accountant? Are you a moon accountant? Are you an accountant? And then if you're a moon accountant, are then you an Earth accountant? Yeah. So we just say these are roles that people will play. And, and that's it. It's very simple. And yeah. so I do want to know, did you take the wedding ring or the crucifix? Because a wedding ring means he doesn't have a wedding ring on for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I took I took the, the crucifix on the, and, and his watch, I think, on the first flight. And I took the wedding ring and on my second flight, which was a two week. Um, OK, it was a short time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was it was good. They so not wearing that ring for too not too long. Uh, yeah, so I trust the guy. Did you do did you, do you did you do? Well, everybody's watching him. Yeah. Uh, do you do watercolor or did you do oil? Uh, I did watercolor and that, yeah, the whole, you know, microgravity environment makes that quite interesting. Oil, I never would have been able to take because we are really limited in the kind of materials you can have on board. The sea. There's all this. It's kind of like the thin blue line holding our atmosphere in here. It does a really good job of holding in the good stuff, but it'll also hold the bad stuff in too. Oh, so, uh, yeah. The oils would know, separate yeah. out, and then you'd have oils yeah, floating around, which are not good for electronics. Well, and, and for the off-gassing and yep. not being able to clean it out. Ah, uh, yes. Kind of the toxic side of it as well. That, that's and the that's smells. really... And the smells, yeah. 
we we lived in our old house was for was water heating, but mm-hmm. our new house that we moved in about twenty years ago had forced air. I could paint with oil in my old house, mm-hmm. but when we moved here, I couldn't because forced air is the entire house. So if I painted yeah. something in the basement, the entire house would smell like oil. Yeah. And that's the same had, thing happens on a space station. Yeah, I've got, obviously. That's yeah. why I brought it up. It was like, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah, I had thought. So you went with watercolor. Okay. I went with water. And, and you know, in hindsight, it was a really, I mean, besides the kind of toxicity, air, you know, smelly kind of stuff, it was um, even better than acrylics because acrylics would have been, even if they were non-toxic water-based, they would have been really messy. You know, well, I would have had to, it just would have been messy. Well, they, they also acrylic also, well, you have, you have oxygen in there. So it would be yeah. able to dry because acrylics dries very quickly, but watercolor. So you, you, how did you not get the, how did it not float out? Well, you know, it's, and it's one, I have one picture, one picture that my, um, my crewmate, Bob Thursk from Canada, thank him again. I, it was just his birthday yesterday. I think probably in a PS, I thanked him for taking that picture in space of painting um, while I was in space. I wish I would have videotaped it because I think, you know, aside from just painting with watercolors in space, I think it would have been a really cool way to just show what it was like to live in space in this microgravity environment where everything floats. You have, I mean, one of the greatest challenges of living inside the space station is keeping track of your stuff. You know, it's why we have, we have Velcro on everything, on our pants. We have Velcro on our pant legs so we could stick stuff to us as we, you know. My father would have loved you. Tools and use it. Oh, outsta- it was outstanding. And um, my father loved Velcro yeah. so much. He had Velcro <laughs> even under the, uh, the dining room table. He had Velcro. So when he was doing something like he put his dental floss underneath, he put all these things underneath. So if you looked under it, he had a full supply at oh, the dinner awesome. table. Yeah, he'd love the pants then. He would have loved the pants. But, you know, so, you know, I had to keep, I had to really thoughtfully consider where's the paint kit going to go? How am I going to keep track of the brush? You know, you don't have a cup of water to dip Mm -hmm, your brush into because there's no cups of water. So, you know, we have these drink bags that we have our water or other beverages in that are, they're kind of like big Capri sun bags with a straw on the end, a little valve. And, you know, so I would squirt out balls of water to dip the brush in and you know everything so you know you would squirt out a ball and then you'd put the brush in it yeah yeah and And then the ball would just stay there as you're painting yeah Yeah. the ball would just oh it was so cool so i could take like and this was what i mean another reason why i wish i would have videotaped it was because oh my gosh you know you would you'd take the brush the tip of the brush and move it i remember seeing this like the first time i did it because i'm being really you know careful not wanting to get water everywhere and um i moved the tip of the brush towards this floating ball of water and even before I touched the bristles to the, the water, it was like the water wanted to move over onto the end of the brush. Yeah, there's a, there's a gravitational pull or electromagnetic or I some type of pull. Yeah, was. I mean, yeah. I looked at it like it was this super top secret, mysterious attraction. No, it was. Just went on. It, no, it was. was surface it, tension. What, I mean, was it airflow? I mean, what was it? N- no, you know, it, it was, was a super top secret mission that you didn't know you were on. <laughs> and it was to see if waters and water and brushes get along. Yeah, you know, obviously like, they what, love well, each other. Are they attracted to each other? Or right. But they are. <laughs> and so then I remember just like kind of, you know, like in a goofy way, just like turning the brush around and watching this ball of water float around the end of the brush. You know, instead of 
like here, the water mixes with the bristles, right? It becomes like one kind of thing. And yeah. there it was like the little ball of water is just kind of moving around the end of the brush. And I had to be careful because if I, you know, moved my arm fast, I would have fling, you know, the right. whole ball of water everywhere. Yeah. And then I took, you know, with the brush, I kind of transported that ball of water down. And I used those, like the little cubed um, watercolors, the solid ones that, yes. you know, you then, you know, I brought it down. And then right before I, you know, touch the ball of water to the, the, the color, it's like it moved over to the paint. Ah. And like, it's like it sucked it all off the, the bottle ball of water all off the brush down onto the paint. And then I mushed it around, you know, and then I was able to like slowly draw off. It's like, again, like the colored ball of water wanted to move back onto the end of the paintbrush. And then um, the, the biggest lesson really was that I didn't really end up painting with the paintbrush the brush ended up just being kind of this tool to drag the ball of colored water along the paper because if you touched if you touched right if you touched the brush to the paper the whole blob of colored water just would go it just go it would go right, right onto it yeah yeah so so there was this whole new technique and it wasn't difficult it was just different you know because now you're having to adapt to the environment that you're in and the way the things are going to behave and you know to paint in space and so, it was so much fun and i'm going to say this is a missed opportunity for the expression of understanding how space uh, project moon how the innovations the paradigm shifting thinking and the endeavor translates back to earth so for example yeah. you saw water in a different way you saw brushes move in a different way. You saw your actions, your body, your motions had to be slower. They couldn't flick it off. You had to decide what you were going to paint mm -hmm. that you could paint. All of those influence innovation. All of those influence behavior. And that would have been the, that would have been the video that was every art teacher on earth would have been playing that. <laughs> seriously because it would have been oh, or or every engineering yeah. class there they're talking about it wouldn't be about the mechanical device that's in the corner it would be about the fact that he, or a psychology class yeah they she had to rethink who and how she operates and it's what's so cool about the environment and i think from every aspect of it the human side of it you know, whether that's the way we move or how our bodies react to it, you know, physiologically to um, the, you know, psychologically, all of that um, down to the science. It's because we the whole reason we even go there is because we can take gravity out of the equation. And that ball of water to me is the most like beautiful visual representation of taking gravity out of the equation, even more than us floating and flying through. Yes, that, that's, that's, that's my point. Water. Yep. Ha, uh, have, Absolutely. You, have you watched the, I'm assuming you've watched some of the Terminator movies? Yeah. Okay, you know the one where the, the guy comes out of the liquid on the ground yeah. <laughs> and he forms? Yeah. Joseph D. Simone, he uh, he created a 3D printing technology where instead of printing it as you put it down, it actually builds from the bottom up. And as you pull up 
the fluid in the material stick to it. And it's printing from a negative perspective, just like that character. So he saw a sci-fi. He then turned it into a company called uh, Carbon 3D. They had 3,200 companies of the largest companies in the world contacted him the day after he did a TED Talk, (laughs) and it was released because of that innovative thinking and that paradigm shifting that came out of a movie. What I'm saying right now, what you just described to me, which people would be watching it saying, oh, we can do it that way. Mm -hmm. And they never thought of it because they never had that experience of what would be a gravitational different type of environment. And that's what's so attractive to the scientists, whether it's somebody that's trying to develop new ways to deliver cancer medicines, you know, that are just targeted at the, mm-hmm. you know, the bad cells and not impacting the rest of the human's body, or they're, you know, building um, protein crystals in, a, yep. in just this more perfect three-dimensional way or they're looking at how different mixtures of fuels burn, you yes. know, to see how can we make it less polluting or more efficient. And these are things that are going, I mean, when I was there, there was over 120 at that time, and I know there's more now, active research investigations going on across all different scientific disciplines that in one way or another affect how and where and you know, the way that we live here on earth. And yet I'm the opportunity of the paintbrush. And yet even these, we we had Stephanie Countryman on and she did a beautiful job of describing how experimentation is allowed on earth to prepare for space. These type of scenarios are not, there is the experiment, but there's the other side of it. Humans, when they go into a new environment, they have to rethink everything. So if you, when I went to Bangladesh, I had to rethink, not because Bangladesh is better or worse. It's just that I was in Hong Kong. Hong Kong operated one way, Bangladesh operated another. But we have so many assumptions about gravity and and the way people live and work and light and temperature. But when you go to space, you have to rethink all of that. And you get to learn all kinds of new things because of that environment about stuff you thought you already knew a lot about. Exactly. <laughs> and, and in and, a whole new way. And, and a that's a billion way. hearts and minds. That's exactly yeah. it is that then you can then say, wow, I can leverage this. Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think about my mom when I was um, in space, of course, you know, your family's worried the whole time that something, you know, some shooting star is going to hit your space station and (laughs) holes, you know, all the air is going to go blowing out and you're going to, you know, we're not, I mean, we're, we're aware of that. I mean, we're diligent and deliberate and aware of that possibility, but that's not what's on our mind the whole time we're there. And, you know, but I, she would describe to me how, you know, back to the NASA TV thing, you know, yeah, you know, Nicole, Nicole, while you or, you know, somebody, you know, that we know is in space, I'll watch NASA TV to see if I can catch a glimpse of you floating through or doing some work or, you know, waving at us on the camera or something. But she goes, it's kind of weird because when I look at the inside of the space station, all I see are these like white panels and cables and there's no, no understanding of what's going on behind all that. And there's no human. 
No, and there's, you know, they're doing a much better job now. I mean, and I bring back Bob Thirsk. Before we flew, we had laid out this whole, what we thought would have been a fantastic educational thing to do. Like once a week, do a video where we go and we pull down one of these panels and we show people, you know, here's this combustion chamber that's burning these fuels like spheres inside of it, you know, and and show them, you know, what's happening behind these white panels, or here's the thing that keeps our air clean, or here's the toilet. I mean, you know, whatever it was, you know, just take them through the station and give them this experience of all the stuff that's really going on in a way that would help make a connection for them. And of course, we never got to do it. But the, the one I would like, you did all of those? Yeah. The one I'd like to do is be able to sit at the dinner table with you. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if you think about all those, you are yeah. great. I, yeah. I have a science background. I can understand well, yeah. it. Organic chemistry, physics, calculus, again, not an issue. But the one that got me excited was I hadn't thought about you guys just sitting around, excuse me, shooting the shit. Yeah. And that's when you're in yeah. St. Petersburg or Moscow, you take out. I, I, I've never had so much vodka in my life. Right. We did a, every time you did a drink, there was a person behind you filling that up. And I had about 75 shots in five days. <laughs> and I remember walking into, I was in St. Petersburg. I did it and I had to go to Moscow. And I remember handing the card to the guy at the counter. And I said, oh my God, I've done about 75 shots in five days. And, but that's, that's what you, yeah. but that, yeah, yeah, I'm not a shot, but you do it when you're in <laughs> Moscow or in, in Russia. And yeah. that, but those are the things that I remember. Yeah. And that's the thing that I would, I would like to be able to sit in and not have the crew be um, not talking about normal things. Yeah. It was I, so much fun. I mean, you know, because you literally are floating three dimensions floating around the dinner table and, you know, and somebody's, you know, every night we would change whose choice of music it could be, you know, because they would upload ah, music to us. Cool. And, you know, we'd, we'd have Ramon's playlist or Gennady's playlist or Bob's playlist. And that was fun. And you'd always hear that kind of thing, you know, music playing through the station. Um, and, you, and you're hearing different music. Guys. So yeah, you're hearing yeah. it from different cultures, which is amazing. Yeah. I have playlists from Macedonia. Yeah. Be yeah, because I, I would never have found these Why people in a million years. Yeah. And the food, you know, everybody asks about the food. The food was one of the greatest things to me. Now, don't get me wrong. There's the nutritional side and the longer term, even going to the moon, we need to not use the food that we've, we've been using. But um, we're going to work on that. I was talking yeah, to yeah, a guy yeah. from ice, uh, talking to a good friend of mine from Iceland yesterday. He's a big, he's a big fish guy, but we're going to be talking those. Yeah. Food is going to be better. Yeah. But the food, I mean, the food actually tasted great. And what was so cool is that, you know, if you've got five international space agencies and 15 different, you're getting food from all different places. And so, you know, we would, as a crew, we always had breakfast in the Russian service module. And I was eating, you know, Tvorg and these beautiful fruit, you know, juice bags that they had. And, you know, lunch was the, the vegetable soup from, you know, from Russia. And then at dinner, you had this kind of smorgasbord thing of, you know, the dehydrated stuff, but, you also had the Japanese curries and, the, mm. you know, and the Europeans did the, this plum compote in this mushroom pate that was all just this blend of mushrooms and vanilla and hazelnuts that was just delicious. And, you know, we're sharing that, you know, it wasn't just like I could only eat the food that the U.S. sent. You know, you know, I, I never again, blend of food. Again, I had never <laughs> I had I had made an assumption. 
wrong assumption that food was food in space and without going past it. And so now I'm asking, can we have Thai food? Because I really, chicken red curry is my favorite. <laughs> uh, and, and I love Japanese food. But just the fact that that was happening, I never had thought about. Yeah. Never. And, and, and it, it's an ignorance of, or a, a blind spot to had not considered how different that food may be. Well, and in a place like the moon, when you talk about, you know, the moon hut project and how, you know, more and more people are going to be coming on, I think you said from 80, from eight up to, you know, over 1600. And, you know, I'm assuming they're not all just from. No, they're from everywhere. And our, and our team, our team is from everywhere. We have people from all over the world helping us. And, you know, and those, I mean, you can take it to the extreme, like at this point right now of traveling to Mars, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to figure out the technology to do that. But how really are we going to accommodate the fact that there will not be resupply for food? You know, you logistically, you just wouldn't be able to do the food system that you have on the space station right now if you're traveling to Mars. Yeah, I mean, it's going to have to revol- it's going to have to be revolutionized. Is it going to be the little pill or the sponge that turns into something else? Is it psychologically compensating with smells and colors and, you know, the presentation or, you know, music, whatever to, you know, to make up for that in the whole meal experience you know that's going to be a drastically different thing is it going to be the star trek holodeck for the humans to have that connection back to earth or to do the art or play the music and on the moon we have we have the opportunity to still you know maintain that physical connection to earth in ways that we absolutely should and we should be considering right up front that human and human spaceflight and yeah and so so to to make it more normal when individuals say i'm involved in space i say no 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 and i did this actually there's a guy by the name of dennis wingo you might know his name yep Yep. i'm in uh in nasa ames facility he ended up based there and that i one thing i didn't understand is where he worked so we came up with the right then the moment i drew a circle of earth and i put number one i put atmosphere as number two and i went through and I said, where do you work? And we figured out he worked in this construct. And that was great. So I said, okay, and now I know you work in between the earth, moon and earth. Then I said to him, what do you do? And he's talking about all these things he does. I said, show me because I don't get it. Yeah. And I look at him and I said, oh, you're a space logistics firm. And he looked at me and I said, yeah, there's air logistics. There's land logistics. There's water logistics. You're a space logistics firm. And he looked at me and he said, I'm a space logistics firm. And that was simple. So we need to have space logistics or mirth logistics mm-hmm. that the focus is delivering between moon and the space between, uh, earth and space between, earth all the way to moon, moon and back, moon to space, and create an ecosystem of an industry called um, mirth, mirth space logistics. And that's the type of thing that makes it normalized. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share with you another, you, you brought Mars a few times. Here's something amazing because you're talking about food. Let's assume that we can start, there's, a, there, what's his name? Elon Musk said, everybody if I said Elon would have known, but you know, when I say Elon Musk said that he wanted to have in 40 to 100 years, a million people on Mars. And I love what he's doing. He's, he's an unbelievable human being and he's, he's really doing some incredible work. 
But then there are new people now saying we're going to have a million people on Mars by 2050. So I say, to, let's do some simple math. It's very simple. Let's assume we start shipping people 2030, that we have enough rockets. That means that every year for 20 years, 50,000 people would have to pack up their bags, say goodbye to their family, tell their parents they're never coming back, tell their children that they're not part of it. They're going to have to come up with enough money, hop onto 1,600 rockets uh, and fly to Mars. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We have an issue here. We also need to bring the supplies with them to build for the next 50,000 people who are going to come. Oh, but we can't go every year. We can only go every two years. So that means 100,000 people or whatever the math is has to hop onto a truck. They have to go at, oh, and they all land, but we can't travel. If you only can lay, uh, take off from Mars within a certain window. So that means within about a month, 100,000 people, 50,000 people are gonna have to hop into rockets and travel for eight months, be fully fed, and they're all gonna land simultaneously at the same time on Mars, and they're all going to have to have housing, room, board, food, and everything. It doesn't make any sense. Yep. It just, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you figured out the math, but I, I don't, I don't see the math that we'll have 25 or 50,000 or 100,000 people hopping on rockets every year and, and taking off Earth. Yep. So we did simple yep. math. So let's finish the uh, number five. You already started off yep. the Earth for... Uh, for um, off earth for off the earth for the earth was what yeah. I think we had said. Yeah. Anything to add there to, to bring that full circle? Um, I don't really think so. I think we've been, I think we've been speaking to it. I mean, a lot of these things just, you know, overlap each other. Um, right. Oh, they do. I've been speaking to it, you know, and I, I love that, that with moon height, you guys are, are proactively incorporating that into the, you know, kind of the ethos, the philosophy of what, you know, approach to what you're doing. Um, you know, as we roll though from this crewmates, not passengers, I, you know, I think it's important to say like in all of this, um, you know, perhaps as, you know, as, as you describe the, you know, the things that are happening here on, on earth, on our planet right now and humanity's um, interaction with that. It's like, to me, I think the greatest skill that humanity could develop is to live like crewmates, not passengers. And that, you know, that really mm. is where people are as crewmates, not only aware of their surroundings and the impact they're having on them and the other life they share it with, but actively involved, actively understanding that they have a role in maintaining, <laughs> you know, maintaining the nature of what's around them. And you know, we talked about in the beginning about this idea of here's how we can, not why we can't, you know, believing their solutions to um, even the most challenging problems and then taking action to um, develop and employ them. Um, I think that, you know, these are, these are like ways of being. They're the ways of being a crewmate, right? You know, not just a passenger along for the ride expecting somebody else to take care of it or the earth just to heal itself in time for you. And um, some of the other, because I think, I think you might appreciate these, you know, some of the other um, approaches are like this idea of, um, you know, of going slow to go fast. Yeah. 
and um, who was it? I think it was like Caesar Augustus. You know, this, this being proactively prepared for things was the first, you know, who's the first emperor of Rome, what, 27 BC to like AD 14. And the phrase back then was festina lente, which was make haste slowly. You know, and, and it, it, he even had different images that he would use to, um, you know, to describe this. And, um, you know, things like uh, a crab and butterfly, a rabbit in a snail shell, you know, dolphins wrapped around an anchor, you know, all of these kinds of things to kind of visualize this idea. Um, but would describe it, and it's, it's like how we're dealing with, you know, this idea of how soon can we employ something like space-based solar power versus what we need to do right now, mm. like immediate actions we need to take. You know, this idea of making haste slowly and that which is done, this is, was his other way of saying it, you know, that which has been done well has been done quickly enough. You know, really recognizing that there are timelines, there are times when um, we have to take immediate action versus times where we can really slowly, deliberately employ, you know, something as well. And I think there's no better example than, you know, the Navy SEALs, right? They have a version of this. I think it's something like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And when you watch Navy SEAL deployments, they are prepared. They don't want to rush or be like, you know, running around like maniacs with their heads cut off when they're trying to deal with the situation. They need to only rush when it's absolutely necessary. And I think uh, that's where we're at. <laughs> a fire, a firefighter, firefighter once said, if you go to a fire and you see a firefighter run, something is wrong. Right. Because right. they're not supposed, to, they are supposed to just do their job. And if they do their job at the right pace, no one's running. If they're running, watch out. Yeah. So it's like a coordinated unit, almost like this deliberate yeah. calm, you know, that's, yeah. that's, well, that's they've done it so many times. They know what it's supposed yeah. to happen. You're supposed to hook yeah. up the water. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. That's your job. Just do it. Yep. And they figured Burst out a way. Of movement only when absolutely necessary. Correct. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I think that's what you would witness if you watched a crew on the space station, just in their normal routine throughout the day. But then when something is hitting the fan, you know, there's you a, an alarm going off at 3 a.m., you know, where everybody, you know, floats out of their crew compartments, you account for all your crewmates, you get into the boldface checklist of here's what we need to remember to do in these cases, you silence the alarm, you get into a safe configuration, and then you can slowly. <laughs> yeah, you make, you make the yeah. right decisions. Yeah, it, I, I just, yeah. I use and a set. being a crew is about. <laughs> I, I, I uh, when you're built, there's a building in San Francisco right now. When it was built, it's only a few inches. The foundation was a few inches off. But because of that, that building has always had challenges. Yeah. You have to have the right foundation. You have to build things solid, which is interesting because I just talked about that this morning with my wife again. So mm -hmm. I have a feeling that you have a bug in our house and I'm kind of <laughs> concerned because you're hitting on a lot of, a lot of cylinders where we're our our project is doing exactly that. We're seven years. No one, we don't do much. We're not out there building right. a foundation. We're making sure we have the KPMGs, Deloitte, the PricewaterhouseCoopers. We have two patent companies who have just come on board. We have uh, all these individuals are helping us, but we're not out there screaming. We're just doing it yeah. steady and yeah. making sure we get there. 
And so you, you made this, you made this comment (laughs) about, so getting to the point, I, I think that the age of infinite, when we get out of this mentality of uh, there's abundance and scarcity. So the reason people want to have more is because they want to have more, Mm -hmm. but the transition from a project moon is to create a world of uh, infinite possibilities, which going back to uh, the conversation with uh, Robert Zubrin, yeah. is what we're doing is saying, if we can get over this hump, when we get over this hump, the world will be a different place. People will see themselves differently. We will not have the same demands on one another the same way. And the crew mates can become crewmates. We right. will see each other differently. And that is built into the construct of, I mean, you're, you're saying it. I was like, okay, yeah. I should quote that. I should quote that. I should quote that. I mean, because you're nailing with all cylinders, the exact same construct is ha- getting the individuals to say, there are amazing people in Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. Yeah, yeah. There are amazing people in Botswana, Zambia, in Panama, in Colombia. They're people. Yep. All They're over. Earthlings. <laughs> they're, they're earthlings and yes uh uh so yeah. anything else with uh, if there's anything for off earth or we go to the open your heart and mind to the yeah i think i think we moment. transition and i you know one of the one of the things you were saying too you know as we get you know we get to this um you know open your heart and mind thing i think it's it's really ultimately about like making you know making life better whatever you do you know make life better and so, some of the things you've said um make me think about things like, you know, back to the thin blue line, right? We have to respect the, you know, the environment of the earth. It's got this thin blue line. We have to be aware of it. We have to respect it, protect it, do all of the things that maintain it so that we can still survive and thrive here. When you go to the moon, it doesn't have one of those thin blue lines. So you have to respect, you have to respect the environment that's in place there. And then how do you manage that and protect it? And and um, I don't know, what is the, the word? Um, uh, Complement it perhaps with the other kinds of things that will put in place something that provides you like the thin metal hull of a spaceship, you know, mm-hmm. to be the pseudo thin blue line. And, and I love what you've said about um, all of the creatures, even the tiniest ones, right? Because you know, one thing I've discovered over the last year or so is, I, I don't think you can, I like to think about it this way, because my astronaut class name is the bugs. <laughs> and so, um, and you know, there's quite the impact on, on bugs of all forms happening on our planet right now, but we should never underestimate the importance of bugs. No. And the, the opportunity we have, you know, we, we go out into space and we look back at earth and we get this kind of you know, overarching this macro view, perhaps. But there's so much significance in the, you know, this power of zooming in and appreciating the little things, the tiniest things that in one way or another with that whole interconnectivity thing are impacting how we can survive and thrive here and and their survival and thrival. thrival. We we need, we need them. We need them all. So when, suggestion is when anybody says we want to improve life for humans i always sorry i will say no we want to improve life on earth for all species we want whales and dolphins and amoebas and we want all of the bacteria and uh, we we want them all and 
it's amazing how you don't hear that conversation in that way. No, and it's it's out there, but it's like, man, you, you know, I just dig in your hand in the dirt. You know, every single one of those little, there's, there's a guy, I, I encourage you to go look him up. His name is David Lichwager. I don't know if you've met him before. But he he's a, a, a National Geographic explorer, photo, you know, um, nature photographer, and he's actually the one you've probably seen. This was an iconic image. I didn't know that he had taken this. You know, the al the baby albatross that's open. It was dead. It's they've opened it up and it's got all the plastic pieces yep. inside of its gut. Mm -hmm. Yes. He he took that picture, and then his partner took the picture where they took all the pieces out and laid it out in a circle on the white paper. Yep. So David is this incredible, incredible um, portrayer of life. And he did a project called, um, I think it's called The World in One Cubic Foot. So he should be on our other podcast, Redefining yeah. Tomorrow. You need, you need to talk to him. He's, and he's one, of, again, he's kind of like a Frank White of the world, where he's just this humble, thoughtful guy that you just want to sit and listen to. And mm -hmm. he, he's amazing. And and he he shared with his me his idea of um, kind of this respect of life around us with how he's always wanting with whatever even the tiniest life form to experience mutual regard to I, and I get goosebumps thinking about it to like and he uses an octopus as an example this eye contact kind of thing that you can have with you know, with creatures and to know that they are looking at sensing, appreciating you in some way too. And then what we do with that, how, how we respect that. And I think it really is about, you know, zooming in, understanding with awe and wonder these little things around us. And then that helps us, I really believe, come to grips with the fact that you know, all these little things that we can do really can, even though they don't seem like it, make a significant, significant impact on the world around us. And that's, you know, to me, that's about like making life better. And it really is about opening your heart and mind to what I like to think of as Earthrise moments. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, you know, the Earthrise moment thing comes from you know, it's, it's based on that, you know, that most iconic image of who and where we are in space together, you know, Earthrise that was taken by the Apollo 8 crew. First time humans had the pleasure, the joy, I think, of, of witnessing with human eyes, you know, our planet in all its glory rising above the horizon of another planetary body, the moon. And then sharing that with us, you know, again, not keeping it to themselves, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, but on that December, you know, that Christmas Eve in 1968, like putting it out to the world, you know, thank goodness, NASA, let that happen. <laughs> let that happen. Yeah. And, um, and I was surprised recently to discover that um, a very dear friend, um, you know, on par with uh, the Jay Honeycutt in, in my life, um, George Abbey, um, he was the one at the time, and I discovered this in his in his recent book, um, The Astronaut Maker, and um, where he was the one that was tasked with picking the images of the images that the Apollo 8 crew to be the Earthrise image. Oh wow! I mean, it's so spectacular, and you know, and I think about it, I'm like, 
you know, I, I can't wait for the, the conversation that I have with George about that, where I, you know, I'm going to say, George, I never knew, you know, I read your book. I never knew that you were the one, you know, that picked that picture, that one that's become so, you know, seminal to us. And, you know, and, and he's got this kind of like voice like this, you know, and, and I know that exactly what he'll say to me, like, well, Nicole, you never asked me about that. <laughs> How am I supposed to know to ask you about that, George? Right. You know? Well, you never asked me. And you know, these incredible, like, little details, these very, these tiny, what you might think of as tiny things that are so significant. And, you know, the impression that, that humanity got from witnessing, you know, through the Apollo 8 guy's eyes, Earth rising above, you know, the horizon of this, like, desolate moon was so impactful. And... Um, you know, for me, I, you know, I realize now I've experienced those kinds of things just looking at the world around me. I mean, there's awe and wonder everywhere we look on this planet, if we open Absolutely. ourselves up to it, you know, in the rainforest you described, under the, the surface of the ocean. Um, you know, I had the, the absolute pleasure of doing an 18-day undersea mission and just feeling like the earth was surrounding me. And like I was the one in the fishbowl, right? You know, the yes, you are. Grouper, you know, they would come up and look at me and like, oh, who's in there now? You know, and then be swimming with them and the eagle rays that came by at the same time, you know, every day and the little fishes and I mean, all of it just, you know, I was the one they were looking at. <laughs> yeah, like you were in the fish, you were in the fishbowl, you know, yep. And um, being able to experience in that and then just, you know, I think you can do those kinds of things perhaps come home and just be like, oh, that's an experience I had and not be in awe of it. And we, ha we have to open our, our hearts and our minds to those things. That's what I think will, will encourage our behavior as crewmates, um, will help us better understand what you've described of, as, you know, this is, this is all life on earth. This is not about just the human beings. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, th I, I don't know, I just, I look for ways all the time to experience those kind of life-changing awe moments. I'm looking out my window right now at a hibiscus bush. Yeah. <laughs> and I can sit here and stare at it all day and think, oh my gosh, that's a flower. How do we have flowers? You know, look at the color of it and the way the sun's hitting it. And, you know, I mean, you can be like captivated by something like a hibiscus flower because there's so much it's kind of like that universe known universe there's there's probably more unknown about it than there oh, is there's, there's more unknown on this planet than we'll ever yeah. be able to figure out it, it, it's in the i love that you have the wonder and i believe that everybody has types of wonder and here's that where i go the negative to go positive okay <laughs> In the 1960s and 70s of the United States, we're talking, uh, Charlie Bolden talked about how when the, when the Apollo missions were going up, a lot of people weren't even paying attention to it. Yep. That we had in the United States, it wasn't happening all over the world. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll, save the planet. We're going to be better. We're going to be do the right things. We are going to be like no other people, set of people in history. Those people grew up to be who the mega mansion owners the people who accumulated who allowed policy to go through that poisons oceans the expectation that humans will do the right thing 
is an expect a flawed expectation, my belief. Yeah. It is that if you can set the environment up where they can feel that what they're doing achieves their desired outcomes, then they're willing to do it because it moves them forward. And so uh, you have, obviously you have a child. Yep. You, you, and you have a husband. Both of them you can't fix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can yeah, fix, but let's, let's, let's that, yeah. Yeah, not in the terms that you could be taken. <laughs> you can't fix them. And if I, when individuals will talk about change and making change, I say, are you married or I have, yeah. Have you changed your wife yet? <laughs> no. Have you changed your, no. So, so let me, th- are you going to change an entire planet this way? doesn't it's not being pragmatic so sometimes what you in my belief structure and i love what you're saying is you put someone into an environment where they feel that oh wow and they learn something they can't unlearn they just can't unlearn it and once they do that the world can change yeah and i think i think that is the that is you know the the whole underlying sense of an earthrise moment is, and you have to be open to it too, right? Um, I mean, I I recently spoke to um, uh, Mark Tursek. I don't know if you know Mark. He, I don't know he Mark. He was the um, former CEO of uh, the Nature Conservancy, and he before that was like a senior executive VP at Goldman Sachs, and his whole life was about, you know making money for clients through, you know, investments at Goldman Sachs. And this is a guy who did not grow up and he will tell you as a nature boy at all. Um, He grew up where, you know, where down the road from him was the Cuyahoga river that caught fire. Oh yes. (laughs) You know, and he's like, because of all the poisons. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then he goes on to tell me the stories of, you know, how impressed he is with, you know, things like Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, where the the industry associated with that would not have chosen to do the things like create a catalytic converter to clean the air up from our automobiles, mm-hmm. but were essentially forced to, right? And then miraculously, the catalytic converter, you know, <laughs> reveals itself and, you know, things get better, air improves, water improves. Um, um, but he talks about discovering and I think this is like through the Earthrise moment kind of thing, discovering your inner environmentalist. <laughs> and, and he will tell you, came very late to that in life. Um, it was the result of, you know, trips with his family where they started with his kids. And he will tell you, it was really a result of like, oh my gosh, I, in whatever I do, need to make life better. I need to be the steward, the crewmate, you know, on behalf of my children, the guardian. <laughs> the, 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 there's a fundamental challenge we have is the ecosystem that we built around us, no matter what we do right now, unless we really, really, really are willing to change, we can't avoid doing damage. Meaning I'm going to go eat when I'm done. And I'm yep. going to probably, there's going to be seven packages that are going to be opened with plastics and materials. There's chemicals. The Europe doesn't allow 13 or 1500 chemicals in the food that the United States allows. Uh, I have a building, it's uh, 3,000 3, plus square feet, including basement finished 4,000 square feet or 400 square meter. 
it operates whether I'm doing something or not. There's electricity flowing through mm -hmm. it. All of these things that we do, we're, well, today the air conditioning unit is not on, but all of these things are operating and we are a net negative just existing. And the society wants to take, there's 80 million new people per year that are added to the planet the one thing that the the tier four countries tier one are those who don't have then tier two might have a a bike and a refrigerator tier three has a home and some extras tier four is uh europe united states and many parts of the world where you have these industrialized complexes is the first thing that everybody wants to do is turn the 80 million people into consumers you they have to have these things and that's not going to change in the near future. So I, I love that he's doing the work and I'm trying to be pragmatic here. I can't change my wife. I can't change my kids. I can influence them. So what do you do to make that change? And in my, there's a, in paid to think, uh, I think I told you I wrote a book. Mm -hmm. I say, uh, came up with this slogan. I think it was with my way. You give uh, when a child is screaming bloody murder and they're in a high chair and they have a fork in their hand. What do you do? How do you get, how do you stop that kid from potentially putting a fork in their eye? What does a mom do and what does a dad do? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Oh, are you asking me? Yeah. What does a dad do compared to a mom? Because I've seen it happen. And I and what does a mom do and a dad do that are different? I don't know. Both, I think, are trying to um, relieve the kid of the fork. But, Correct. Um, you know. And I'm being uh, very sexist here, but I take know. it as it is. You know, there, there might be yelling and grabbing it. And there might be, you know, calmly approaching and trying to relieve So, them. So a dad takes the fork away. Yeah. And the mom is like, what are you doing? Because yeah. the kid goes nuts. And the mom walks up with another, with a spoon mm -hmm. and waves it and says, here's a spoon. Look at how nice, look at how shiny it is. Yeah. And it is, uh, give a spoon, take a fork. Yep. What we have to do, and that's the age of infinite, is replace the constructs that we have with something that's shiny like a new spoon. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it starts with, you know, there's, I think there's those of us that recognize that already. And we have um, perhaps the responsibility to be the ones that demonstrate that. Yes. <laughs> In our own lives. Um, I have seen, I have seen things within my own home where, like you say, you know, changing somebody else is not necessarily going to happen. But by demonstrating it, there's like a gradual shift. Yes. In things. And it comes back to those bugs and the little things and the mutual regard is that if they make a difference. Bugs are important. I'm, I'm laughing because <laughs> bugs are important. We need them. Yeah. yeah. The amount of poo that would be um, piling up without the bugs is, you know, I don't know if that's a. a yeah. Yes. Poo is a technical or, term. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think there's. I don't know. I just, you know, coming back to it, there, all of this, even in the Earthrise moment, it's, you know, like Frank's overview effect thing. We talked about, you know, the essence of that already is that, yep. you know, I think even Frank will tell you, it's not just about the experience. It's about what you do with it. 
Right. What action do you take? What call to action do you feel because of that experience? And and that's not just for astronauts, you know. It's just how do you apply that in our, you know in our everyday lives? Um, and with people finding their way in in the awe and wonder that surrounds them, to just really be like have that that unifying kind of life changing moment in the hibiscus flower or wherever it might be, to be like holy moly. This might not be comfortable. It's not always comfortable being a crew on a spaceship. Sometimes you just gotta do stuff you don't want to do, <laughs> you know, well, to survive. And and that's why when you're done, you might go clean the bathroom. Yep. Because absolutely. those are the things that we have to do yeah. to get there. And that's how we thrive. Yeah. And I think, you know, the model of the ISS program, I really, I mean, I really feel like it is the perfect one for all, all of us here on Spaceship Earth. And I would say for, you know, for Moon Hut as well, it sounds like you've already incorporated a lot of these ideas, this idea of being, you know, crew as stewards and guardians. And, you know, with respect to our own planet, um, I really believe that, you know, behaving like crewmates, not passengers, you know, we, we have the power to create a future for ourselves and for all that life on earth that you mentioned, that's as beautiful as it looks from space. I want to thank you for incredible time together with you. This is what I was hoping we'd have is that experience of getting to know one another and, and to learn uh, about new things. And I yep. also hope with your energy and understanding a little bit more about Project Moon Hot, that your time with us will be a global movement to change how we live on earth for all species. And I think you can be an integral part of it. So I want to thank you for you that time, the time you spent. So I will also want to thank, thank everybody else out there for taking the time out of your day to listen in. I sincerely hope that you learn something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. We traveled today across many different types of discussions. If you've heard all the podcasts, mm -hmm. they go in all different directions. Okay. This was one that had a lot of really powerful moments, very different than a Strickland, who was about the science of the um, space solar power. And yet there's so many nuggets of amazing experiences here that I was learning, and I hope you learned along the way. Once again, Project Moon Hut Foundation is we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door. That's the original, what was called a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use the endeavors, the paradigm-shifting thinking, and the innovations and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. That's exactly what we're working on. Now, Nicole, what's the single best way for individuals who want to get in touch with you to connect with you? Um, probably through social media. Um, I'm at at astro underscore Nicole and my website is NicoleStott.com. And it's S-T-O-T-T. S-T-O-T-T. -T. No H in the Nicole. Well, I, I have been I have been slammed by one person in the beginning when I was saying your name. I'd say Scott. And he said, no, no, Stott. So it's S-T-O-T-T. And I personally would love to connect with you too. You can reach me at david at moonhut.org. You can connect with us on Twitter at, at Project Moon Hut, or my personally is at Goldsmith. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. You can look for Project Moon Hut and you'll hear more about us as we move forward. So that said, I'm David Goldsmith.
and thank you for listening.